Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, Wildbo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and today I'd like to tell you about my client, Eric. Eric is a lot of things to a lot of people, but first and foremost, he is a man of integrity. And he did. Huh, just cracked it. Just like that? Well, <clears throat> uh, let's uh, go live to Scott Daly with uh, more. What? Uh, just do the fucking intro. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of asking your dad to murder your sister. Oops, we forgot about the normies and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week on the show, we continue Arc 17 Sundown with Chapter 17.9 and 17.10. Victoria avoids going back to the Situation Room by doing totally normal things like commanding her rogue body to swallow chicken and suggesting that her dad should totally kill her sister. Then, Tattletail and Victoria attempt to solve the mystery of the other threat. After some deliciously nerdy powers discussion, Victoria heads back, makes Eric look like makes Eric look like a little punk, and then realizes that they should have been paying attention to all the little punks out there. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? I never want to take your eye off the punks. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I like that we get to cover these two together. It's, it feels like it feels like they are a unit to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm going to have a lot of fun, you know, we're going to have a lot of fun going into what's going on with our character here and specifically with our, you know, relating to her, her relationship with Tattletail, I think. And, and there's also going to be some nice um, discussion of, of kind of the larger playing field. And, and I think there's also going to be some opportunity for talking about the different, um, I guess, writing techniques or storytelling techniques that are being employed here. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, I like these chapters a lot. I, I think this is a very interesting arc. This, as we've been saying the whole time, this feels like the the calm before the storm kind of arc, um, which is kind of crazy to say in a book in an arc with a lot of really tense things happening. But as far as the climax of the story, we're bringing our themes together. I think these two chapters specifically, there's there's a moment in this in chapter ten that really feels like things are coming full circle on one of the mini arcs of the story, and and makes it clear to me that we're moving into what feels like the end game. Yeah. I mean, in terms of this being a a, a calm, you know, a calm arc, um, Victoria's basically been in this, you know, this secure location pretty much. And, and we've watched there's, there's a detachment from the actual action and what action there has been, has been viewed through, you know, cameras. Um, and and that creates a very interesting effect, which we actually, um, I think are going to talk about, in our discussion question specifically. Yeah. And, and like you said last week, um, there's an anti-climax here specifically because the story has constructed this climactic moment that occurred in last week's chapters as 
a misdirection or focusing on the wrong thing. So that's what these chapters mm-hmm. are all about. It's like, okay, that's solved, but that wasn't the problem. Now it's almost we're doing rising action to what is the real problem. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how that pays off. Yeah, it's a it's a it's it's a shift to a kind of tension where you're like, well, we we feel like we solved the problem, but there's still this ambient tension of, well, we know there's got to be something else that's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. We, don't, we, we don't know what. Yep. All right. Uh, so before we move on into the chapters, uh, for, first, just one announcement: uh, the Halloween costume contest. Um, the submit the deadline for submissions has passed, and the voting is now live. Uh, for for doof media patrons winners will be announced this time next week so thank you all for your submissions and and uh really really awesome submissions this uh this year yeah it was it's so fun to see these um if if you are a patron of us and you haven't gone and voted yet do that do it um there's still about a third of you i think that haven't looked at that post yet and i i can see those analytics so <laughs> to go do that um and yeah, and if you, I mean, if you're not a patron, if you if you join now, you get to vote in that contest. That's how those rewards work. So yeah, do it. We can't wait to announce those winners and and show off all those costumes. It's it was fantastic. I love this was Matt's idea last year, and I loved it so much. And I'm so glad we get to do it. Yeah, um, yeah. Once again, really happy with the quality. Same as last year, really. But um, there there's some really amazing ones. And, and yeah, even if, even if you're not a patron, you'll uh, be able to see the uh, oh, yeah. the results at the end. So yeah. yeah, but if you're a patron, you participate in the democracy. Yeah, the the <laughs> the the fee gated democracy. Yeah, which is just America, baby. Yeah, that's, that's how it's always been. <laughs> Get real, everybody. <laughs> All right, seventeen dot nine begins with Victoria reflecting on having passed her own personal everything-is-fucked metric, which she defines as the body ceasing to make fundamental sense. She's slept but feels exhausted. She's she's showered but feels scummy. She's starving but she can't eat. And uh, she thinks that right now she should be coming up for air, comparing the situation room to being repeatedly pushed underwater. Yeah, uh, this is a really great continuation of our ongoing water is a bad thing metaphor we've we've hit a few times throughout the story. And and of course, I love it here. And I also love once again how aware of her mental state Victoria is right Um, to make to make a comparison that I once swore we would stop making. Taylor, I think, was often very ignorant of the depth depth of her issues and her mental state in any given moment. And the book kind of forced you to read the subtext to get there. I don't think that's the way Victoria is. And I think that the subtext in this book is is forcing you to do a very different thing because she is always constantly aware of herself. Um, and I, I just find that that very interesting. I mean, right here, she says, literally, I'd walk away from the situation room in the Amy situation, wanting to climb into bed and pu- pull heavy covers around me. Not an option. I needed to do what I could here or I'd regret, regret it forever. Um, and that's just like totally she she's aware of what her state is. She's aware of what she needs and she's aware of what she wants. And so like, it's interesting to have a character who's fully aware of those dynamics and continues to make the same choices anyway. Yeah. It's interesting because part of me just wants to say, yeah, she, she's a more introspective character than Taylor. And maybe that's true in a literal sense, but I think maybe what, what this shows us is that just because you're introspective doesn't mean you have control over yourself. Sure. Sure. It just means you're aware 
And I, and I wanted to talk to you about this idea of of what she says here. I needed to do what I could here or I'd regret it forever, because I, I find this is really interesting. And it, it really clued something into me, especially after we talked last week about this concept of regret that these last few chapters have dealt with. And so, like, if Worm is a book that explores the idea of villainy and and explores it and and reframes it as this, like, noble attempt uh, to fix the system via bucking the central authority of the system, one read of Ward could be an exploration of the nature of heroism and the self-destruction those kind of tendencies cause. Mm -hmm. Because Victoria's live without regrets portion that is central to her mantra is, I think, one of her most heroic qualities. It, it is what guides her to do good. It is what guides her to save people, to keep fighting, even when all hope seems lost. But in this moment... It is textually what is also driving her away from the help she needs, the rest she needs, the the the, the self-care she needs, and into the destructive and potentially mentally and physically damaging behavior that she's putting herself under. And and it's just it's, it's just so interesting that this it's it's literally an exploration of the concept of a, a hero complex in that it's noble in one sense, but then you see that she can't not do something like she she literally is unable to do something, even if she knows it's what she needs. Yeah. It's, so, I mean, I think there's there's a reason why the the phrase with great power comes great responsibility has become such a popular phrase because it's such a, a pithy way of phrasing this this classic hero complex. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it's the it's the Spider-Man thing, but it's sort of all the heroes to, to one degree or another. Um, but. I think what what Victoria has in common with Peter Parker here is a complete lack of any ability to say, you know what, this time I need to take care of myself because part of being responsible is taking care of yourself so that <laughs> so that you can even if right. only so that you can continue to take care of others effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um and but she she really has a hard time with that and here as you just said we we see her basically in a situation where any reasonable person w- would would say, and in fact, I think she's literally surrounded by people who are saying, you need to sit this one out. Lit- literally sit this one out, Victoria. We're ordering <laughs> you to sit this one out. And she's saying, I will regret it if I do that. If I yeah. let you make me take a break, mm-hmm. I will regret it. And that's yeah. it, it's self-destructive, like you said. Yeah, and I think it's really fascinating. Like, it, it, there's There's such a thin line between wow, look at that. That's such a, that's such heroic behavior to, oh God, what are you doing to yourself? Yeah. And I, I love that this book skirts that line near constantly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I love this bit where she connects the idea of the body not making sense with the idea of drowning and specifically how drowning people can latch out in panic and harm their own rescuers. Yeah, it's it's really great, right? Yeah. It's like once again our very aware character acknowledging that she could inadvertently hurt people via the path she's on right now. Um, she yeah. she knows she can, but she can't stop anyway. And and I really do think that the text is is injecting this degree of of it's making it's making me on edge. I'll speak for myself. It's making me on edge that. She's throwing in this idea that when you're panicked, you might accidentally lash out and and hurt people who are just trying to help you. And yeah. we have the situation where she's repeatedly sort of using her force field intentionally 
like I I did and I didn't. It's like that's such that's such bullshit, Victoria. Like like what it means is you're not really in control of it in in the way that yeah. you should be. And it's this super dangerous thing that we've we've seen how dangerous it is. We've seen seen how unreliable it can be and how how, how aggressive it can be even now, even after it's been repaired. Um, it, it, when she used it fighting damsels group, it was way more violent than she would have been by default. Right. So like we yeah. have every reason to be wary of this thing. Th- sure. This is the metaphor. This is the metaphorical thrashing while people are trying to rescue you, I think. Yeah. And, and I think, I think you're absolutely correct to feel that way. And I think the book is doing that to you. And I think a lot of, especially the end of chapter 10 is playing off of, is this real fear that especially with a guy that Victoria hates as much as Eric, this could go that way, right? Mm-hmm. This could go to the the thrashing. I mean, the book is playing off of that and we get very, very close, like to where the first time I was reading these two chapters, I was like, oh, fuck, this mm-hmm. is when it's going to happen. This is exactly what we're heading to. And dear God, how bad is this going to be if she actually does this? And we dodged that bullet this time, <laughs> this time. But we'll see. I don't know. Um, I, I really, I like one of the things I really like about this too, is this idea of like Victoria is reinforcing this contradiction of her body, right? Like she's talking about this and there's this really great moment when she's like, I ate the chicken despite my body sending me five different signals saying I shouldn't too full. No, you're not stupid body. You ate that. You ate a light dinner last night and had a meal barely bigger than your fist this morning. Nauseous. You're being stupid. Overwhelming. It's mild. Actually taste it. Unfamiliar poison. The wardens wouldn't poison everyone by sitting on site by serving something dangerous in the cafeteria. Probably slimy. No, shut up. Internal voice. It's a motherfucking delight of texture. That's that's a wonderful paragraph. And I I think it's a great continuation of what we've been pointing out about Victoria throughout this arc that there's this this interesting thing in which waste. She feels closer to waste than she does to her own body. Right. Like the more in line and she's gotten with her shard, the more alien her own body has felt to her. Mm -hmm. And that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. 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 I mean, I I don't know much to add there. Basically, yeah, it's 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 continuing her kind of alienation from her body uh, not just continuing but it, it exacerbating it just emphasizing like she's not getting any any kind of comfort from any quarter other than basically her new connection with her shard which she is getting more and more kind of monomaniacal about actually yeah yeah and that's i mean that's one of the things that makes me like wonder right like her her issues with her own body have been something that has been recurring throughout the story, right? Like from the very beginning, we had this idea of her being uncomfortable in this body. uh, And we thought Victoria was making progress with that. And it seems like to me, it shifted to I'm comfortable with the wretch, the body, not so much. So I wonder if that's a hint towards this idea. Like we 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 talked last week about this idea of, oh, well, the control of the wretch, it feels like a good thing. But also the way the book is framing it always makes me very, very nervous about it. And maybe this is a hint towards this is why you should be nervous, because like it's progress in one area and seems to be regression in another. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think it, it it feels a bit more like one of those coping mechanisms where it helps in one arena, but at the expense of another. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Scott, I, I I noted down that um, she's eating an egg sandwich, and you didn't say anything about the egg 
that she's eating egg. Anyway. Well, um, <laughs> what did you want me to say? It's just, it's, it's, it's important. She can't throw away an egg sandwich. She can't throw it away. She can't, th- she, she won't throw it away because an animal sacrificed itself for the meal. I mean, she's also dipping uh, a chicken finger, a fried chicken finger into sour cream. Is that yeah. like a Canada thing? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Where's the barbecue sauce? Northeast thing. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe it's a whatever planet that is thing. Yeah, that's a that's a specific gimbal thing. Yeah, yeah. Or it's a shard thing. It's a shard thing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the the crux that's to the clue. Un- unlocking everything that's happening. Yeah. Go back and read uh, Victoria Shard's chapter and see if it mentions sour cream <laughs> at all. That's our clue. Okay. Okay. We'll do. Uh, so then we go into a kind of basically this kind of thing that makes up much of this chapter and the next one, which is Victoria's ruminations about the possible threat that she suspects everyone is overlooking. So I think at this point, just to kind of frame what we're going to be talking about for the next two chapters, let's talk generally about this problem solving aspect of these chapters. And also, I think how the reveal at the end of 17.10 puts everything in a new in a new light. Yeah, I think as we talked about at the the top of the the show, this this underlying feeling that Victoria has reinforced every single chapter in this arc is that this isn't the real threat. This isn't the real threat. And now the book has really pivoted towards just having our characters examine what the real threat could be. Um, So it's it's back to buddy cop Victoria and Lisa, you know, detecting their way through the potential threats here. Um, And. I, I enjoy this. I mean, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of really, really nerdy power stuff that gets discussed in here in really interesting ways throughout this process. Um, because like and, and I think I think this is one of those areas that I think we're going to look back on in a few months and see how much very clever setting up Wild Bo did amongst the conversation around all these disparate threats. I, I really feel like that's the type of thing he would like to do. And that's the type of thing he's done in the past. And we're going to be like, Oh, of course he set this up very subtly through the, the blasphemies. Um, and I, I, I think that's a really cool thing. And it's whenever I get to a section like this, I'm like, I need to bookmark this chapter because I'm going to want to go back to it. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think that's the, the, the clever thing. I notice a lot with this kind of storytelling, the kind of storytelling that Ward is where, um, it, it is important to have a lot of potential red herrings floating around. And probably most of what's in this chapter is red herrings. Probably not just red herrings. Like, like okay, let's like the blasphemies, for example. Like, I bet the blasphemies are not going to be the big bad. But no. I bet we are going to hear about them more and see them again. Well, yeah. So, and I mean, there's specific method of communication across the world, you know, sans shard network yeah seems like it's going to tie into something even if it's not the direct threat it is it is part of something 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 you know yeah it's one of those things i think it's a very clever way of doing things and it and again it feels to me very uh not climactic in itself but prepping for climax right we are here in this moment maybe at the beginning of the end um laying out all the pieces on the board, showing where they are, saying which ones we think we're worried about, which ones we don't think we're worried about, and really just kind of like narrowing the focus of the story. Mm -hmm. Yep. So also, you know, while she's doing these ruminations, this is before Paddletail's called her, um, there's this note introduced here where she starts to consider what um, 
what of her thoughts is passenger and what is her. And basically the point is at this point, at the start of the chapter, she's thinking about this as a dichotomy. Was this me or was this my partner? Uh, also, man, the, the fact that she's using the word partner here is uh, really something. Yeah, I think this is fun in in that like we're specifically referring to this as like, is it a 50-50 split? Is it more one side than the other? And I think this is kind of reminding us of this dichotomy so that the Tattletale conversation can specifically challenge this idea, this this idea of looking at it in this way, um, which I think is going to be very important to where the book goes from here. So I, I think it's important that the book kind of refreshes your memory about this. Um, and, and I love I love you pull on the partner because, yeah, it is just on its own. Just like you read that and you're like, oh, man, like. This is not this is this is the alien that's in your head, but also your partner. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, like just just her word usage when describing it, too. Right. Like, surely my fragile, violent partner wanted me to be well rested, thoroughly and warmly fucked, assured and nourished. Surely these things were qualifiers for me being a capable and efficient host for the power it laid across my brain like a queen might lay a sword on a knight's shoulder, um, which I mean, so first of all, like the use of surely there, like to me has like a a doubt connotation to it. When I hear someone say like, oh, well, surely blah, 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 blah. I'm always Uh like, you kind of doubt what you're saying. That's my and and that might be a personal thing that I'm putting onto this book. I don't know. But that's like when I hear that, that's automatically what I go to. But then like the the power of the image of a queen might lay a sword on a knight's shoulder, which is basically reverential to the power, right? It's reverential to the shard. It's like, you are the queen. I am your knight. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I really love that whole paragraph. Exactly. Like the, the, the kind of reverence that she's, that she's, that she seems to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also seeing herself as a knight even implies like a, a, a belief that she has been blessed in a sense with this, with this gift. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, I mean, yeah, there's also the fact that like we, we have had, like we've had stuff with, with Amy where she thinks of her shard as, you know, a queen also. Um, but mm-hmm. in this case, Victoria is, is, is basically putting herself, I don't know. It's interesting because part partner is a word that implies, um, uh, equality, but then queen and knight, does not imply equality. Sure. It's just interesting how um, there's there's a lot there's a lot going on here with respect to how she's. It's almost like she's playing around with different ways of conceptualizing her relationship with her shard because yeah, yeah. The, the word partner is definitely new, but she uses it a bunch of times. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're right. Does does Amy call her shard queen or does she call it princess? I feel I like she, she calls it right. princess. I think she calls it princess. Um, I think you're which right. is which yeah. is again an interesting dynamic there, right? Yeah, and she um, calls herself a queen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's true. That's true. Yeah, good point. Um, so Eric calls her on the phone for a friendly chat <laughs> and manages to accuse her of shady behavior. Which, and I mean, you know, she was totally doing exactly what he's accusing her of, but still rude. <laughs> yeah. Um, Eric also confirms that he's familiar with Victoria's background, which is not something that we actually knew for sure. Yeah. And uh, the specific context here is related to Amy, right? It's like you read about my background with my sister. So the, the question here, Matt, is, is this Eric saying he knew what Amy did to Victoria all along, uh, which makes like what we what we like s- interpreted as possibly just rudeness via ignorance 
earlier when he was defending Amy? Does that make that just truly a despicable thing to do? Or has he boned up on Vicky's history while she was boning uh, up on Annalise? Uh, I interpreted the former that, that he had always known about it. I, I mean, basically my interpretation of, of his attitude toward this is, is one of just like detachment where, um, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like how, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm fixated on this cause I know that I said something similar last week, but the idea that Eric probably knows about as much about the Amy Victoria thing as the average worm reader, or maybe I said this in a Reddit thread, but like the average worm reader who just read worm and doesn't know the word of God and didn't read ward. Um, they have quote unquote, all of the relevant information, but they don't actually understand. Um, yeah, we, we walked away from ward, not uh, from worm, not really understanding everything that was implied by what happened um, in Brockton Bay. And, and, and so this is not meant to, to excuse Eric's behavior. It's, it's more like, I, I think it's an interesting window into what happens when people just have quote unquote, all the information, but not really, but haven't really thought about it and haven't really thought about the context and aren't really like, he's not particularly seeing her as a human being like that. That's definitely yeah. true. He's sort of seeing her as a pain in his ass Sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, and, and I yeah. think as we'll learn earlier, like he is very, he's very specifically, uh, enjoying this opportunity to have power over a, a person with power. And, yeah. And that is one of the big reveals about Eric at the end of these chapters is, is his whole viewpoint on this power, this power imbalance between the powered and the non-powered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So anyway, on the phone, she bullies, I mean, uh, persuades him into connecting <laughs> the incoming call from Flashbang so she could talk to him. So, yeah, I, I, I want to we're going to we have a lot to talk about the Mark conversation here before we jump into this absolutely incredible conversation. I wanted to focus on this one bit as Victoria is kind of patiently waiting to be connected. Um, so she's sitting there. She's in the cafeteria. She's alone by herself. There's other groups that are uh, eating together and some people that are alone. And, and the description here is great. Hero teams around me were huddled at their tables, talking. A few isolated capes sat alone, heroes that had never been attached to a team, but who wanted to help. The mood was one of a forest fire, all hands on deck, people waiting to be deployed to the latest area that was getting out of control, hoping to get things back down. Keep it under control for long enough, we pretended, and maybe the fires would burn down, things would be okay, the healing would start. I mean, this is this is it's a beautiful way of painting the scene as like there's all these people around and everyone's tense and nervous and like and she's totally detached from all of it, except for this this one moment where she views it. And it's this great like this 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 we pretended line is this great window into how done Victoria is with this whole concept of uh, heroism in the traditional uh, para humans PRT type of sense right this she sees it as nothing more than an, an illusion that that we're just gonna, we're going to do our job and we're going to keep everything going long enough that things are going to eventually calm down and then we're going to heal again and then we'll do it again and she's just so done with it she's so done with that entire concept of heroism yeah just i mean the idea of of forest fires i, I feel it's kind of like a thankless and and she says pretended that that implies like yeah it's just going to keep going at this grinding pace and 
this just kind of you're you're always fighting a, a war of attrition where you can't really yeah. win. Yeah. And that's her attitude right now. Yeah. And she I mean, she participated in that for so long and is just seemingly not interested in participating in that. And that's I mean, this has been a long time coming, right? Like the, the concept of uh, her wanting to to do things that actually have long lasting impact has been on her mind forever. But it just I just really clued into this moment where she's just like, look at all these people. They're still doing all that stuff. They're still pretending they're still fighting the fire, hoping that they'll just control it, never extinguish it because we, we can't. Um, and she's so detached from that. Yeah. It's all around her, but she's not part of it anymore. Yeah. And I think she has this mentality that like, she wants to, she wants to just, I don't know what's the proper metaphor, you know, just put out the put out the forest fire once and for all, even if it even if the cost is really high. Yeah. You know what? I don't I don't I don't know. Rip if out the trees and they won't burn. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just, you know, uh, bulldoze all the trees in, ahead of the I don't know, some some metaphor there. Uh, so so then Mark, the, the call is connected and she has this really raw conversation with her father. Um, so so <laughs> Mark. <Aww. laughs> So Mark is is basically venting. He's letting loose. He's revealing vulnerabilities, revealing doubts that he's never shown to his daughter before. And one one kind of theme is that he's talking about how he constantly feels like he's getting a leg up on things. And then he looks around and realizes that he's actually fallen behind. He's he he, he thought he was getting ahead, and it, it and then it seems like as soon as he as soon as he does the thing that he thought was going to be the right thing. It was the wrong thing, and the world has passed him by, and and he's he's always he always feels like he's playing catch up, and he's he's kind of out of it. Yeah, and I think there's I think there's a certain part of that that echoes a lot of how Victoria sometimes feels about her, you know, attempts to make a difference in the world. Right. Um, yeah. At the end of this conversation, Eric says, or sorry, Eric, Mark says, uh, "You're so much like your mother, and not at all like me." And and while we have pointed out multiple times throughout the story that Victoria is very much like Carol, I think there is some of Mark in her. And I think we see it in that, that idea that like, we're just like, you you constantly feel like you're behind as, as hard as you try. I mean, she was basically just thinking about that when she was thinking right. about the forest fire. Right, like, right, right. I, I, I really do think that there is a lot of, um, a lot of the things Mark is saying about himself definitely apply to Victoria. Yeah. Um, but she, interestingly, she doesn't seem to see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is exactly what I wanted out of this. Like you and I had been talking for weeks about how, like, I need more information on Mark. I want to know what's going on with Mark. Uh, maybe we'll get a Mark interlude. And I was so waiting for this court, this conversation and it is exactly what I wanted it to be. Right. It's, it's vulnerable. It's painful. It reveals what Mark's thought process is and, and why he is behaving the way in which he is behaving. And, and these attempts that, that ultimately I think mean well, like he's trying to do the thing that he thinks is the right thing. And he's still just hurting people and he doesn't even mean to. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love that he opens up the conversation talking how proud he he is a Victoria, right? It's this really great moment where like one of the first things he says to her is, I just wanted to let you know, I'm proud of you. And she kind of hates it. Mm. And it's really fascinating because the implication here, and, and I, th- she doesn't actually come right out and say this, but one of the, one of my interpretations is that, that he's proud of her strength. He's proud of the way she behaved. And the idea that sh- he's proud of her ability to confront Amy 
and still see her as a person and extend this benefit of the doubt to Amy, uh, even as she's being a terrible person. And it makes sense that Victoria would hear that and and be angry at that because Victoria, even when she was in the shower a couple chapters ago, was looking at that and seeing that as disgusting, seeing like I had to do this. This was the means to an end. I didn't want to do it. And I'm not proud of myself for having to do that. And then her father comes along and says, I'm proud of you. And it goes right back to that feeling. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on that reading. I think I think that I think she rightly thinks that he's proud of her kind of willingness to you know, um, to not, not necessarily forgive Amy, but, but, um, I think just the, the, where you used extend her the benefit of the doubt and Victoria has not actually done that in her heart. She's, mm-hmm. she's only, she's done it, uh, performatively to try to maneuver Amy, manipulate yeah. her. Yeah. Um, but the, and the fact that her father is proud of that suggests that her father actually thinks that that's what she should do, which she absolutely disagrees with. Right. Um, so I think even before we see her reaction to this, we, and we see him saying, oh, I'm proud of you for, for doing that. We're like, oh, no, no, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, it really, really sets the tone of this conversation really well at the beginning too, because there is this just fundamental disconnect between these two people, right? They just are, they're talking to each other, but they're almost talking past each other. They're, they're, what they're saying is not reaching each other. Um, and everything is interpreted differently. And I think that's really wonderful. And it's part of what I love about this so much. Me too. Yeah. Uh, there's this one part. So uh, he talks about family and he talks about family, how much family is a part of his struggles. And he talks then, then he has this wonderful moment about Carol, like, holy hell, Victoria, I love her. She brings out the best in me. And I think being close to her helps her good side shine. Like it's this really wonderful moment where you see how much he loved this woman still and how complicated and messy their relationship is and how he's, he just feels like he can't ever get there with her. He can't ever um, get to a place where he's able to rein her in when she needs to be. And it's, it's really, it's a really wonderful dynamic. And then this one line that makes me love Mark a little bit is when he says, same thing with Amy, but I won't get into that. And like this just quiet kindness with this March, Mark still understands Victoria's relationship with her sister just enough to where he knows getting into the details of that is not the good thing to do right now. It's not, it's not what we need right now. It's not a good plan. And he just extends that to her. We're like, I think Carol on the other hand would have said, yeah, same thing with Amy. And let's get into this in detail. Mark extends that kind of quiet kindness with just saying, we won't get into that right now. Yeah. And and I think it's not inappropriate for him to bring it up in the first place because they are talking about his issues with family and, and it's totally, a, a, a worthy topic of conversation but yeah it's it it's it's kind and polite of him to be like just yeah. acknowledge it and then be like but let's let's set that aside mm-hmm. yeah, yeah uh so he tells her that she's the only family member that he doesn't have regrets about and then that causes her to think about the fact that after it became clear that she was actually aware in her wretch body he gradually stopped coming to see her as often yeah and so once again, we have this idea of regrets, right? This It's really been a recurring beat in this arc so far, right? Victoria is trying to live without them. A- Annalise trying to make up for stuff at, to avoid living with them in, in the future. And then her father looking at her proudly and, and, and saying, this is, this is the one thing in my life that I've done right. This is the one thing in my life that I've done right by. And Victoria hates that because she's like, nah. <laughs> yeah. 
And I, I, I like I totally agree. Like I, I'm not I don't want to attack Victoria here because I think to, to have that feeling to feel like your father has let you down in some way. And by saying I have no regrets, he's basically unbeknownst to him saying that he approves of all his behavior when you clearly don't. But I wonder and again, I don't want to attack Victoria here. Has she has she communicated any of this to him ever? Um. I think definitely not. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, I think that's that's why this is a this is a crucial conversation in the book. Actually, is that it? And and not to get ahead of ourselves, but by the end of the conversation, she says like, "If if you can if you can do this, then I will forgive you." Right. And he's like, "Forgive me." And yeah. Like he he just got done saying, "I don't have any regrets." So if if I don't have any regrets, what do I have to forgive? Like by definition, right? Um, and he, and he doesn't get it. And I think, I think even it, first of all, she doesn't even tell him what, what she holds against him. Like, yeah. like all, all, she, all she communicates is, by the way, I have a simmering resentment toward you that I've never communicated, which is it's almost certainly influenced our, our interactions. Um, right. But like, I mean, especially this, like a lot of the stuff she's saying in her head in this conversation is like the exact stuff she should be saying to her father. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if my dad had stuck it out, tried a bit harder, faced the hard stuff, maybe she and he would have met. Maybe it would have been possible to drag them into therapy. Maybe we could have established boundaries, found a framework and been able to deal with Amy when she reentered the picture, but he hadn't. So that hadn't happened. Was it a some chance? Yeah. But it was a chance. All of us has shit to deal with, but so often it felt like I was the one going the extra mile to wade through the shit to the far end, stick my hand out to fucking try. I wanted him to regret that. And I'm like, Victoria, that's great. What you just said is great. You're right. You are 100% right. Now say it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> Tell your dad this. And and you could argue, I, I suppose, that maybe this isn't the time, right? Like this maybe like he's behind enemy lines he's with your sister um maybe this isn't the time to have this conversation but as Annalise pointed out a couple chapters ago there might not be another time right like the world might end Uh, things are going to get crazy there might not be another time to do this so so maybe if you truly want to live your life without regrets maybe this is the time to let your dad know the way you feel let him know how he hurt you yeah i mean it's really it's an interesting general idea the idea that um if if you if you feel someone has wronged you, th- then you basically have the option. Well, you have a few options. One option is you just unilaterally forgive them in your own mind, and then it's not an issue anymore. Sure. You may not even have that option though. Like it, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, like like you may be like, I would love to be able to forgive them. I just I'm just too angry. And then if you're in that position, your options I guess are just kind of hope that they'll figure it out, which I I think in reality results in you just being passive aggressive toward them forever. Yeah. And yeah. never actually addresses the problem and, and they're not going to figure it out because I mean, people aren't, aren't mind readers and sure. Sure. And they don't tend to be th- that kind of self-aware, um, especially not if they just don't see the situation the way you saw it. And then the other option is you just have to tell them that you feel that way. And, and, they might it might even offend them. They might be like, "No, I, that that's not fair. I didn't do that." But you kind of have to take that risk because the alternative is like this permanent black cloud over the relationship, and and that's yeah. kind of what it's been with her dad. It's been this like, um, even from very early in the story when she when her dad came over after the 
um, the barbecue incident, she's always kind of held him at arm's length. And I think it's always been related to this. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Because this is new information to us, right? The, the specifics of his behavior around her in the hospital is not something Victoria has ever let us know. I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, it's opportunity missed there. Yeah, I, I think I think at that point she was also mad at him because he was clearly not he clearly didn't understand how you know traumatized she still was and and yeah. how big a deal it was sure um but i think he, un, unlike carol once he once he realized that he was actually able to be like oh okay i get it right. whereas carol yeah. was like i'll just try again yeah and i mean like it's funny because it's like one of the big recurring beats with amy is this concept of like the first step amy is understanding and admitting the things you've done mm-hmm. and like victoria has has laid that out to her um and of course the things her father did to her are not nearly as as literal and terrible as what amy did to her um but in order to be able to like accept and understand and learn and grow from your mistakes sometimes people have to point them out to you yeah like, <laughs> like yeah like in an ideal world mark would know like oh yeah that i did that and that was fucked up Right. Like I totally acknowledge and I, no one has to tell me that no one has to inform me of how awful that was. But sometimes you just got to let people know. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's it's entirely possible that he has no idea that he did that. Right. Like like mm-hmm. it was it was subconscious. And if she pointed it out to him, he might even be like, no, I didn't. And then and then think about it and be like, oh, my God, you're right. Um, yeah. And it's also entirely possible that like him and Carol had a conversation where they were like, you know, let's you know trade off or something i don't know like yeah who knows but but none of that none of that gets figured out unless you communicate so sure sure yeah um yeah so she finds some privacy away from prying ears and uh before before the conversation continues though uh we get this moment where she sees a couple giving each other a moment of physical comfort just kind of holding each other and it hurts her to see this yeah, I, I, I love this because it's just once again reinforcing her isolation and her loneliness, right? She has she had that physical contact with Annalise, but it was it was nothing. It was fleeting. It was gone. Um, she has nothing like what she's witnessing these two capes have. And she has family on the phone right now. She has a loved one on the phone, technically. But she, Victoria really feels no love towards her father, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, later, a little bit later in the conversation, she says four fucks to give a left my four give a fucks left. My dad didn't get one either. Um, and that is echoing something she says earlier in the chapter, talking about how she doesn't have one for Eric either. And that is Victoria literally drawing a line between Eric, the person she can't stand and hates um, and her father. And I just like, obviously, it's not the same thing. Obviously, she dislikes eric more than she dislikes her dad probably but the the story and our protagonist has drawn a line via this this wording between these two and that's like damn damn victoria yeah eric bad huh (laughs) yeah yeah seriously i mean it it is it is kind of sad because ideally you get some kind of i like this phrase nourishment you get some kind of nourishment from your family yeah even if there are even if you like rub your family wrong and they rub you wrong sometimes and there's friction and there's there's idiosyncrasies that everyone has 
ideally you get some nourishment from them, but it just seems yeah. like for this whole story, any interaction with any of her relatives, I guess, except Crystal has just been pure conflict and, or, or, or just friction, I guess is, is, is a better word. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that, that's no exception here. So Victoria then basically, um, she kind of fairly quickly asks if Amy's death would result in any immediate disasters. And then when Mark says no, she says, um, could you kill her uh, if you needed to? <laughs> sure hope nobody is monitoring this call. Yeah. Um, before uh, we move on to, to, to that conversation, I just want to pull out this, this text. Uh, constantly holding the phone up was hard, especially with the fierceness I'd been gripping it. I adjusted my hold, then brought my hand down, rubbing at the soft part between thumb and index finger, cracking my knuckles individually, then doing the same with my other hand, fidgeting. Um, pretty sure I didn't catch the implications of this on the first read through. I, I didn't either. And it's because it's so subtle, yeah. right? Like it's like not even specifically saying, and then the wretch grabbed my phone with right. a hand. It, it's, it's really fascinating. And like uh, this continues throughout these chapters, just like it has in the chapters before it. And what's interesting to me here is we learn a little bit later that Victoria like says, I really, really want to fly, but I don't dare use my flight. Um, it, because of the wardens she acknowledges, but because of the threat of the the breaking ice. And she says, we're pretty far away from that right now, but still don't want to take chances. And I'm just like, but you, you're doing you're taking the chances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, it, it's it's so interesting how all of her wretch force field use in this. I almost want to say this whole arc has been like semi-intentional like like we get stuff like this where she clearly is using it right now but the narration doesn't acknowledge it yeah and she never really acknowledges the risk of it at all she doesn't acknowledge the risk to the dimensional fabric she doesn't really acknowledge the risk that it's gonna you know pulp somebody accidentally like she just has this faith like no no i have control now yeah and it's like okay kinda you did like almost kill somebody with the mirror of a car or whatever it was earlier. Um, so I don't know. I don't know, man. I'm worried. Well, it, I mean, here's the thing about this though. I mean, this is the honest truth about it. And I think I wrote this later in the script, but we'll talk about it now. This is a fitting place for it. You don't like, you don't like think about moving your fingers, right? Mm -hmm. You don't like think, you don't like think like, when it is an extension of your body such to the point that it is you like, you don't really think about the different, like the idea that, Oh, I have to activate my arm. I right. have to activate this. Like that's not something when you describe your actions you're doing. So I, I think it is symptomatic of the fact that the wretch as it is, is now just a full, like no separation extension of who she is to where you don't have to think about it as an independent action or idea or concept anymore it's just i just i just do this i'm just doing this and so i think that the narration of the book slotting into that and not paying attention to it with a, a couple rare exceptions um i i think is really fascinating yeah yeah no that's a good point i i like that that's a that's that's a slightly different take actually from what i was saying because the implication there is that she does really have that control because like if I if I say like I'm gonna hold the phone between my shoulder and my ear, 
there's not a risk that I'm accidentally going to crush a nearby person sure, sure. through that action. Like, like I, I just, I, I can just do that. It's, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't, uh, yeah. I mean, the, 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 I think she does, or at least to the level of she thinks she does. Right. And like, it's, it's become mm-hmm. it, 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 this in her head, it's become like just another extension of her. So that doesn't necessarily dispute, the argument you're making. Um, yeah. I just think it in her, in her mind, her thought process, it is so aligned. Well, it's entirely possible that I'm being silly and that in fact, she does just now have this kind of unity and, and control that she thinks she does. And, and mm-hmm. there, and, and there's not going to be this moment where the wretch does something that she, uh, sort of intended and sort of didn't, um, um, so I don't know. I don't know. It, it, yeah. It's, it's, but I, I don't think I'm, I don't think it's silly to be worried, but, but I don't necessarily know for a fact that we're going to get that moment of, uh, of, oh shit. So I think by the end of this chapter, I'm kind of leaning towards we're not, I, I think if there's going to be a way in which the wretch influences her, I think it's going to be more subtle and more like, like chart, like the, a chart of behavior across time versus like the one moment of, ha. You, your guard is down and then bam. Yeah. Um, I, I just don't think, I don't think that's where we're going with it. Um, I, I feel like what lends credence to that is that there were opportunities for that to happen in, in, in these chapters and, and yeah. it didn't. So a- ample opportunities. Yeah. 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 So to get back to this conversation, um, Victoria's like, so could you, could you kill her? And Mark's like, Jesus, what the fuck, Victoria? <laughs> She's basically my daughter. And Victoria just doesn't really back down on it. Like, nope. So, so there was some discussion on discord about like <laughs> parents and kids and, and uh, like, like <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've found, I've found by like, you know, talking with parents and, and seeing people talking about being parents and being a parent, like t- typically if you have a trolley problem where your kid is on one track of the train and there's like 5 billion people in, on the other track, I, I don't I don't think most parents are going to be able to pull that switch that, that kills their own kid. I just think that like that's how we're put together. We're just not able to do that. And so Mark Mark being like basically just being like, no, don't don't ask me to do that. That's crazy is is a very re- like realistic and reasonable reaction here. And um, if, if anything, what's what's interesting about the interaction is that Victoria just refuses to to back down on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I am not a parent, so I can't comment on that specifically, but I, I will say that I fully bought Mark's reaction here. Like it, it, it read to me as completely realistic, regardless of whether I've ever experienced this specifically or not. Um, just like, and I don't even know if it's a lack of understanding on his part as to whether or not this will be necessary, but more just of a, as you said, like a, a gut reaction to, there's no fucking way I could ever do that. There's yeah. just, there's just like, uh, there's no way. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, that, that read completely realistic to me. I think that's very, I think that I, I, I feel like when I am a parent, I will definitely feel that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so, so Victoria, she's just laying into him. Like she's absolutely bulldogging this idea that, Hey Mark, you might need to kill her. Let's be honest. You probably will definitely should. Um, and, Maybe, you know, maybe just go ahead and kill her right now, actually. Like, just get out of the way. Yeah. Um, 
and 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 he keeps protesting like and pushing back and it's it's interesting because later and i'll talk about it in a second later she characterizes this conversation kind of differently than the way it actually went Mm -hmm. because the way it actually went is basically her being like okay let me quick check real quick if you killed her would that would there be a disaster okay kill her just go kill her kill her yeah kill her kill her her. okay Yeah, yeah so it's it's uh yeah she she does uh, my opinion is that if you were to like witness this conversation um she would she would not come off well here actually yeah i don't think so either and and i think like we've talked about this before it might be 100% necessary at the end of this whole thing to kill amy right yeah yeah but uh, again the way in which she does this is very nightmarish <laughs> um like like he's he's talking metaphorical, right? Like she's like, could you put that gun to her head and pull the trigger? That's like the metaphor, right? Like, uh-huh. could you could you be the one to pull the trigger? Could you be one to press that button? And he's like, no, I can't. I can't pull that trigger. And then she immediately goes, I was thinking more like a light bomb at her feet. Maximum power. Um, yeah, you'd have to. And then and then goes on to say you'd have to run after like she's basically doing what she's been doing in her head the entire time. Right. And, and where she's outlying in great detail exactly what the situation would be if if she kills Amy. She's outlining this in, in detail. And then um, and then. She's doing it out loud now, though, she's doing it out loud to her father. And that is that is quite the shock. Um and and I do absolutely find it horrifying at times. I think she does characterize this to Eric. And I think there's I do think there's some truth to this. I think there's some truth to the idea that what she's trying to do is make the stakes as real as possible is is make her father understand this is where we're at now. Like this is in my opinion, this is where we're at. If she does not go to therapy, if she does not carry up her part of the bargain, this is where we're at. And And I think this is fascinating for me because this is a dynamic that we've seen before, right? Like when she was on, on Sheen last, she made this same arrangement with Amy basically where she said, go to therapy only this time it was, or I'm going to drop you in a prison world <laughs> to, to never to be seen again. Um, and now it's moved on to go to therapy or uh, you, you, you have to die. Like you, that's 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 where the stakes are in her mind, and she's trying to get that across to her father. These are where the stakes are at. Do you understand this? Yeah, I think that's really interesting, and and it calls attention to the fact that I almost wonder if Victoria's a little bit locked into this idea that um, if Amy goes to therapy, then that's like a massive win, and. And she can breathe a sigh of relief because now Amy is being is being looked after by someone who's going to be able to help her. And it's like, I I, I think I mean, different people have 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 said different kind of diagnoses for what is actually going on with Amy. But mm-hmm. take pretty much any of those, in, in in any of the more credible diagnoses for what Amy for what is going on with her, and it's like the least treatable profile actually it's it's basically the it's basically personality disorders which are among the worst um from a uh treatment point of view because because you like in amy's situation she's gonna just amy it she's gonna be like well nothing's wrong with me it's everyone else who has the problem and and that's the worst that's the worst outcome for a therapist because a therapist always wants you to come to them and say i have a problem i want you to help me with yeah if you come to them and you say everyone else is the problem i'm fine they don't really have a lot to go on. 
Yeah. Um, so I don't have a lot of hope, actually. I, I don't I don't have this confidence that Victoria does that, OK, we'll get her in therapy. We'll sort it out. I, I don't see, I, I don't think that's re- going to happen. See, I don't even know if Victoria has that confidence. I think Victoria sees it as. For my my sense of right and wrong, my sense of morality, my sense of fairness, I think Victoria says we have to give her the opportunity. We have to give her the opportunity to try to get better. Um, I don't think Victoria believes this is going to work. I don't think Victoria believes she's going to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Victoria believes that if she went to therapy, she would get better. Um, I I think I think she she would love for that to be true. Um, But I think Victoria sees the killing as what's going to happen. But I think I think for herself and for you know, her concept of the world, she needs, she needs to still provide that opportunity, allow Amy to reject that opportunity. And then we go to the nuclear option rather than, than just do it. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's my read at least. Yeah. I think that's, I think that makes sense. I, I, I uh, yeah, I think that, that, that tracks with all the different stuff she's kind of juggling internally. Mm-hmm. Um, do we'll, you agree? We'll see. Do you agree that, uh, Mark almost calls her Amy as the call wraps up. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, like they're talking about Amy as they go. And, and he is kind of shocked. Right. He's like put off put off balance at the end of the call because she says, do any do any one of those three things and I'll forgive you. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. And so he's totally put off balance. And then she's like, I've got to go. Amy. Victoria, we need to talk about this. And I love that it goes uncommented on. Yeah. I think it's marvelous because, it, I mean, like your brain kind of goes wild with this, right? Where you're yeah. like, is she acting in a way in a way in this moment to him that reminds him of his other daughter? I think I think that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, like like she is doing this thing where she's fixated on some particular outcome and and not really able to see past it, even as he's like, no, 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 not going to happen. No. Um, and like this, this whole, this whole time is basically her, her saying like, you need to do A, B and C and him being like, not, I'm not gonna. And, <laughs> and, and, and that's the whole conversation basically. Right. Um, yeah. um, just before we move on from, from this interaction, there was one moment in here where like Victoria has a few of her Victoria isms and one of them is absolutely. And, um, she asked him a question <laughs> and he says, Absolutely. And I was like, oh, okay, that's where she got that one. That's yeah, great. That's, that's good. I like that. I yeah. like that. So she ends the call basically hanging up on him. And then she returns Tattletail's call. And I think this is a really interesting turn for, for this arc, actually. Because, first of all, we've remarked over and over that she's failing to kind of reciprocate offered personal connections. She, even, you know, Annalise, even her dad. Um, she sort of rejects their attempt at an actual personal connection and she's just kind of, it's a transactional interaction in both cases. It doesn't really do a lot for her. It leaves her in this isolated space where she's kind of forced to reach out to her, her, her shard. Yeah. But here she calls Tattletail and immediately, immediately I think that starts to change because immediately Tattletail takes this very interesting tone that she holds for the duration of this conversation where I think she's kind of de-escalating. She's kind of soothing. There's still this ever-present telltale needling energy that it's 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 her. That's who she is. She has to. She kind of has to do that. But it's more like friendly ribbing rather than like poking at the sorest possible spot. Um, 
like like for example at the beginning of the conversation telltale steers the conversation toward like what the kids are doing how kenzie's doing like like, let's talk about future sleepovers gay chicken um basically just giving victoria room to decompress for a moment and just basically almost just blather about nothing for a minute yeah, I mean, we, we kind of learn a little bit later that Tattletail's entire goal in this conversation is to calm Victoria down enough that she stops avoiding going back in the situation room because they need her there. They need her at the center of of everything that's going down. They, they need her as the eyes and ears there. And I think it's really wonderful because when Tattletail is approaching you with kid gloves, you know you're in a real bad fucking place, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's a great way of, because it is, there is there is a different energy to this call and it's something that Victoria picks up on immediately because it's so different from the way Tattletale handles people. So, but, so do you, do you feel, because I feel like this isn't just Tattletale trying to manipulate Victoria to go back into that room. That This is, this is kind of a genuine attempt at a personal connection. Which, yeah. which I think is 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 achieved. Um, I think that Victoria finally gets the human the human you know one one on one conversational connection that she has not been able to get up until this point in this arc. Yes, I think it is both. I I, I think I think it can serve Tattletale's underlying goals, but I also think Tattletale is the uh, the type of person who will use goals as a method of shielding what they actually care about. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well said. And, yeah. and I think, I think, I think she has a grudging <laughs> respect for Victoria. I think they've seen each other at their worst. Um, and they've, they've bonded over their shared experiences throughout the story. So yeah, I think there is some genuine care and, and relationship there. Sure. I mean, I think, I think just little details like the fact that Tattletale starts out calling her kiddo and then, switches to um i forget what she switches to but but basically the, these are her little endearment names yeah yeah where she's like i see you as my little someone that i'm trying to protect yeah yeah which is which is great because that's how that's how tattletale frames interactions right yeah. like via just the, just that exact way yeah yeah, yeah. so um i, I kind of want to call attention to the fact that victoria is being watched by 13 people <laughs> Because yeah. this seems to suggest like really a high level of active suspicion. Yeah, right. Um, it, it th- so we thirteen people, not including Tattletail, right? Yeah. Um, certainly one of them is Kenzie, right? Although I don't know if that would count in the the, ad. and maybe there's another some other mem- members of Breakthrough in here, but certainly there are segments of the Wardens that are deeply concerned with Victoria and her behavior and are monitoring every single thing she does, right? Yeah. Um, so like. Eric, probably one of them, but I think there's other people that that means there's like 13 is a specific number. If there was like there's if if the book said there's one other person watching you right now, then I think everyone reading would have gone, oh, it's Eric. Right. Yeah. Uh, but 13. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, it, 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 it hints that they the wardens have their eye on her. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. not it's not just like, oh, er- Eric is is this this jerk who has it in for her. I mean, yes, he is that. Yeah. Um, and and, and <laughs> that, he does. Yes. Um, but also, but also he's not acting without grounding. I think, um, I, I think, I think that th- this suggests like, I mean, we don't know, like, is she, is she on their list of, of like, this is a volatile element we need to keep an eye on. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly people are keeping an eye on her. So, 
Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. And I think that I think that is supposed to clue you in on that very subtly, that it, it, it is as terrible as Eric is. It is not just him. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Victoria breathes a word about getting dirt on Eric. And then Kenzie instantly has blackmail material on everybody in the room. <laughs> um, so I think this tidbit is really easy to ignore, but I think it's important. It's going to come back in a minute because Eric is really opinionated about the old PRT. Uh, and I think it may be reading into it a little bit, but I take this to mean Eric has like really strong opinions about and thought it was really important that civilians had authority over capes. That was that was how the PRT was set up. Yep. And I think we see that explicitly confirmed in that great Eric reveal at the end of the next chapter, that that is exactly what he feels. Um, and that that kind of informs every bit of this interaction between the two of them. And it explains why if they were, this was never going to work out because they're both coming from kind of opposite opposite opinions on this. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's philosophical. I mean, yeah, he, yeah, he is he is being a jerk. Like he is, he just has a shitty personality. But also, I think there's a there's a philosophical difference that's driving all of that too. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, and, and I I do think it is really the 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 speed at which Kenzie gets dirt on every single person in that room is remarkable <laughs> and. It is one of those things that I wonder if it's being set up explicitly to pay off later. Like, you know, whenever usually in a story, whenever a character like lies or keeps a secret or steals or does something secretive, it almost always ends up mattering. And it doesn't necessarily have to matter in the fact that like, oh, you're busted, you're caught. But it ends up paying off in some way or like just generally the rules of storytelling. Why would you have this if not if it wasn't going to pay off in some way? So it's one of those things It's like. Jesus, Kenzie, like it's just instantaneous on everyone in the room, even poor, poor LaRue, who has just been this guy that Victoria really likes. It's like, oh, yeah, we got dirt on him, too. Yeah, I forget what his dirt was. Um, yeah, I forget. But, but yeah, <laughs> poor, poor LaRue. Yeah, I, I did. I did think that was interesting that like we we took LaRue, who we we had on something of a pedestal, if only if only in a relative sense, because we saw how annoying Eric was. Yeah. And now we've taken him down a peg uh, in Victoria's mind. And in yeah, our mind, because there, there's because there's dirt. Yeah. There's dirt. Yeah. Right. Right. So Victoria asks Tattletale to um, help entertain her and Tattletale obliges. Again, we're seeing Tattletale kind of put herself at Victoria's disposal in a big way. Mm hmm. And so we go through the the usual list of possible disaster points. We learn that Legend apparently faced down the sleeper by <laughs> uh, blowing up a city. So cool. Uh, wild bow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, this whole part of the chapter is fun and interesting while serving up a buffet of red herrings, possibly with the true culprit hidden somewhere in there. Yeah, and I don't I don't have a lot of very specific stuff to say about any of this. Um I, I like it all. It, like we said at the beginning of the podcast, it is the book catching us up on all the threats in the world and, and playing a, a kind of guess who game. And I, I, I again, this is what really reinforces to me that that this arc is specifically setting up the pieces for the climax of the story. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like we're about ready to move into act three. I could be wrong. I might be wrong, but it just feels that way. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so the main things that we don't already know a lot about are the Mama Mathers-esque tech that gives you like a big mental after image if you mess with it. Uh, and Flint, which was apparently an incident involving a cape that creates <laughs> triggers, laid golden 
eggs, if you will. <laughs> oh my God. Um, who was then cut into pieces. Uh, there's also an implication that Taylor like intentionally let a lot of the class S threats die uh, during the gold morning fight, um, which is, I, I think, I think just, we know that's sort of true. Like she did, she did kind of use stuff like, um, 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 oh man, I can't believe I'm blanking on it. She she used a lot of the of the of the scarier capes as as meat shields, basically. Yes, yes, that's our girl. Always doing the nice thing while doing the awful thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, so that the, I really the part about that I really liked is when Tattletail's talking about quantum tripwires, and then we just get imp. Returning to the story in the most impish way possible, where she says, Imp here, I thought it was important to notify you that whenever Tattletail is saying quantum, she's talking out of her ass. Each last syllable is enunciated by way of but, which is just the perfect sentence. It's the best sentence I've ever read. Yeah. And um, I, I commented this on my my Twitter thread, and I, I liked the tweet so much that I'm just going to literally repeat it here. Imp is the character who, like, wonderfully, like, you don't notice when she hasn't been in the story very long until she comes back into it and then it's amazing you realize how much you missed her yeah yeah and i i love that i mean that's that's perfect to her character and that she just pops back into the story here to just do this wonderful moment um and i love it i love it i like to imagine that she has been like reading quantum physics textbooks in her spare time yeah you gotta be the classy classy villain exactly and know and the science and the in the literature yeah i mean and, and 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 that's why she's offended by tattletale here she's like yeah, yes you 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 know what you're talking about um <laughs> every last syllable is enunciated <laughs> by way of but yeah it's, it's i love it her. yeah so also apparently uh the blasphemies are super interesting these are some characters we've not thought about since worm basically yeah. uh so b- apparently what happened was different tinkers across the world without communicating with each other they each built a blasphemy and then there were also a bunch of other attempts um that were not successful um and and now the blasphemies are, are apparently back together so some something's going on so, yeah i don't yeah. know how to comment on this other than huh huh yeah <laughs> yeah i can't wait to see what comes of this right yeah right, like right. it's a cool idea like like it suggests some kind of interesting background shard something something yeah um then i'm sure we'll figure out more about what, yeah. what's going on here like we said when we were talking about this earlier this more than anything we we circle around in this part feels to me like it is laying seeds for something yeah. that might not be specific to the blasphemies but is going to play off of this this weird quirk with what's going on with their power yeah i guess i would yeah i think i'd say like I wouldn't be surprised if we never hear about these Mama Mathers tinker devices, but I would be surprised if we never see anything else about the blasphemies. But we are going to hear about the Mama Mathers tinker device in the very next chapter. That's true. So, um, <laughs> uh, so having g- given Vicky time to process, Telltale then starts to push her to go back into the Situation Room. Um, but even here, she's not really pushing hard. She's mm-hmm. she's she kind of is like, we really need you in there. And then Victoria is like, now nah, let's talk about Contessa. Yeah. And then the chapter ends here. 
I, I like this though because like we kind of started with Contessa and then Dinah and then worked our way through these other things and it kind of naturally just circles back around to Contessa like it's like inevitable that any conversation about any of the threats is going to circle back to Contessa just like it's inevitable that in a book in which Contessa exists the book is going to have to circle back around to her eventually it's just she's too powerful for at least part of what's going on to not go through considering her. Um, and I, I like that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I think I've said before, Contessa is almost a story breaking and definitely a story defining element. If, if you're going to have a Contessa in your story. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you, you almost can't have it be a background element because it just would, it would just not be realistic. Well, um, and, and I, and I have to be honest here, every time Contessa comes back into the story, I kind of grimace a little bit because I'm, I'm worried like I'm like oh god I, I don't know if I'm gonna like this and then it, the story always pays it off in a way that I end up enjoying it but it's always like a worry to me because yeah I mean I, I think it's so easy for this character to just totally break your story but it it, it doesn't happen that yeah, way yeah I, so. I, I feel I think that you, we, you and I are both kind of reacting to like oh man whenever I see this kind of concept used uh it's used badly but then wild but reliably is doing kind of a, a twist on it that makes it work. Sure, um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, all right, 17.10. And the conversation continues with Victoria getting an analysis on Contessa uh, from Tattletale and then later getting an analysis on Contessa from Citrine. Uh, and what Tattletale says is uh, she's lava. Uh, she spreads out. <laughs> she, she spreads out inexorably. She can move fast when it suits her. And you can't touch her. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Contessa this chapter, and it's going to make my head hurt a little bit because I'm the resident person on this podcast for whom these precognition determinism conversations ends up confusing a lot. So as that person, uh, I like the simplicity of this metaphor, and I think it's almost an acknowledgement that this stuff's really complicated, and the best way to really parse it is you first break it down into something simple and easy to digest, and then from there, get more complicated. And uh, the lava metaphor is simple. It is easy to understand. It, it checks out. Our characters parse it really well, um, and then we just kind of add more complication to it as we go. Yeah. Yeah, Totally. Um, so as they continue to converse, Victoria finds her way to the site of the battle between Ashley and Spawner, the place where her friend died. Yeah. And so I wrote this part of the script before the Tuesday chapter was released. So I might end up making myself look like an idiot here, but this very much feels like the story coming full circle, right? We had the end of the teacher arc ended with Ashley dying in this place. Then we had the next arc start with Victoria mourning her friend and a lot of, uh, a lot of what has spurred her to action across these last few chapters has been partially motivated by grieving for her lost friend. And now we are having Victoria return to that place, return to that place where she died. Um, and, she's alone like physically and almost like and she's she's isolated she's alone and she's returned to the place where Ashley died and now we're returning to the woman who maybe caused that death in her weird Contessa e way um and so it just very much feels like this is the conclusion of the arc this is the last chapter of the arc um yeah that's what it feels like to me absolutely yeah and I, I think the text makes it explicit that connection there where she's looking at where swan song died and she's 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 
thinking about Contessa and she asks herself like, Mm -hmm. so wait, like Ashley died and and, and for what? Like it's, it seems, it seems like this was all an elaborate shell game and, and I don't, I don't even know what, what we won for the sacrifice that we made. So, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting and complex stuff here, but I wanted to pull this out specifically because I've been looking for an opportunity to walk back something I said like a few weeks ago. And what I said was that Contessa's power goes out of its way to make tangential disasters in the course of accomplishing its objectives. And like that was one of those things. This happens a lot where like as soon as I said (laughs) it, I was like, no, I don't really think that's right. It's it's more like I was kind of trying it out to see to see what I thought about it. Um, what I've come to think is is a lot more in line with what Tattletale says here. And, and and this is one of those times where I just kind of take this at face value because um, I think Citrine sort of backs it up later. So, so Tattletale says, it's all about the shortest path in Terry's. Her power doesn't say, walk for two days to get to this location, talk to that person, if it can say that she should talk to the person next to her. Her goal was self-preservation. Your group, Imp, and the Heartbroken were next to her, and making you happy ensured you didn't hurt or stop her. You just happened to be close enough to the lava to get burned too. Um, and and then she says, so the uh, well, the, yeah. Then Victoria says, so the goal was survival, even reaching out to us, the ABC thing. It was survival or partially survival, which they go on to talk about, like whether, like what might have been manipulation and what might have just been an honest an honest choice. Uh, Citrine elaborates on this and says. Um, the, the optimization criteria is probably like time or maybe number of steps or maybe some combination of the two. Um, and, and basically the, the reason why we see collateral damage occur so much is because a plan that only takes three steps is always going to be preferred over one that takes 40 steps. Um, unless you explicitly state all of the like secondary objectives that you want to preserve. So So. going back to our, our GPS metaphor, the GPS will route you the fastest way possible, even if that way involves you uh, running into a school bus. Yeah. Unless you specifically say avoid school bus. Yeah. Or don't don't drive me through the, you know, uh, crime part of town or what. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Something some like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, so basically what we're kind of posing here with this whole thing is this idea that perhaps even Contessa's choice option was kind of bullshit in and of itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And that the, the intent of the choices was less about getting them to choose the correct path and more about the choices themselves and the offering of the choices themselves, manipulating breakthrough into doing whatever Contessa needed to do to ensure her own survival. Right. So the idea that we're going to offer you these choices, um, I kind of know what you're going to choose anyway, but offering you the choice makes you behave in a certain way. Like the idea that even, even Contessa's, or even Sveta's rejection of the choices would be calculated into whatever whatever questions yeah. she's act, acting right, and that like that's it's, it's like oh it's free will's an illusion then, which is like technically true. Around Contessa, I think Citrine says this definitively later in the chapter that like determinism when it comes to Contessa, like it's go, it's going to happen that way. Yeah, like it's just it's going to. Yeah, I mean, I I think definitely like. Ashley throughout that whole arc was clearly um, coming to terms with the idea that she was going to be the one who would die. Mm -hmm. And um, that was able to happen because Contessa had planted that seed. 
Right. Like if she hadn't said like, yeah, we're, we're going to take this choice. One of you is going to die. And basically Ashley was like, well, if one of us is going to die, it might as well be me. And then I get to go out in a blaze of, of badassness. Sure. Um, and, and that allowed them to then win the day. So that's, a, that, that's like a perfect example of her having stated and framed the choice that way, literally made it a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically. Right, right. So, so uh, Tattletail still seems to think that um, Contessa's long-term plan, long-term goal, is to be able to retire, to be free of her power. And I, I'm, I'm not sure if I buy that. Victoria also says she doesn't really buy that. So we'll, we'll see, I guess. Yeah, I'm inclined to trust Victoria's gut over Lisa's like shitty shard-induced <laughs> inferences, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think I think you know one of the things that Contessa absolutely does in the story is at the very least kind of push us toward the inevitable truth that freedom from your power is not an attainable goal. Um, Contessa is arguably the most powerful parahuman alive, and she tried it, and that didn't work. Um, so the idea that like via Contessa, we can start ex- really exploring this idea that I think Tattletale holds up later in the chapter of, of that you have to consider this a totality, that powers are not a problem to be solved. They are a part of the whole that is you and you need to start thinking of them that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. So as this exchange goes on, Vicky takes small moments, um, to mourn Ashley reflecting on how she uh, wouldn't be having this meeting of minds with Tattletail at all if she hadn't gotten to know Ashley. I love this moment so much. I, it, like seeing Victoria, like the, the Victoria that has been isolated and like separating and lonely um, and kind of embracing her shard over humanity in this moment anchors herself to a, a person who has died, but yes, a person, right? A person that she really cared about. I think we said a couple weeks ago that Ashley doesn't ascend without Victoria's help. And I think that's true. But I think the opposite is true also, as Victoria says here, Victoria's growth and deeper understanding and acceptance of people outside of the black and white dichotomy doesn't happen without Ashley, which means there's this beautiful like symbiosis here in, in their friendship that they both made the best version of each other. Mm -hmm. And again, that makes, that really makes you feel like we're coming like full circle in this moment it's beautiful yeah yeah this really is a great a great you know because because Weblo could have written this whole conversation to occur with victoria just still standing in that hallway right yeah yeah i think it was a great you know beautiful decision to have her walk because because it's all it's all in the same the same complex she just kind of wanders around and she ends up walking to the location where the battle happened and she knows that's where it happened and 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 so yeah. And the book never explicitly says this is where Ashley died. Right. right? Like the, it never comes out and says, now I was standing in the room that Ashley died in. It just kind of very subtly clues you in on that. And you kind of see Victoria thinking about Swan Song a lot more than she had been. And and that kind of that with like there's like there's signs of battle here and claw marks. And it's like leading you down an understanding uh, of that's where we are. Yeah. Right. Um yeah, I, I think I think it would be easy to miss, actually. But it's um, so so much so that the first time I read it, I did. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't actually remember what gave it away to me. I think it was something like the um, like the corrosion or something, um, which then reminded me it, it was some word that made me think of Ashley's power being used. Yeah. 
And then well, I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the 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 section and like I think Wildbo puts in a, a an end beat at this where she says, speaking aloud to nothing, that I think you would know exactly what to do with this kid. And like the first time I read that, I immediately went, she's like, oh, she's talking to the wretch again. Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, 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 oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's a good like capping beat on just in case you're like me and you just whiffed on it the first time you read it. Like here's kind of here's a way of getting that right before you move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 the closest to an explicit call out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just just before we move on, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that she uses her power to hold the phone but doesn't actually think about it here she tells tattletale my power changed and tattletale says yeah i I know floating phone earlier kind of gave it away (laughs) and then if you're like me and you missed the implications of that you're like "Oh, oh oh um so not only this though not only is she doing stuff like accidentally or or maybe intentionally using it to hold her phone um, she also seemingly accidentally crushes the metal railing that she's holding on to, which is more unintentional power use. I mean, not, not crushes. She just makes a little hand-shaped indent. Uh-huh. Just like, it's just like leaving your hand in fresh cement. You just got to mark yourself, mark your place uh-huh. as, you, as you go by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, she doesn't do that on purpose, though. She no. just, she, I mean, like, you, the, the force field being active gives her super strength, right? Right. So, like she's stronger and she's gripping the railing and she just squeezes a little too hard. Yeah. Which means she's using the force field without intending to, which. Yeah. 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 So, which again, the wretch is, I, I don't think the wretch is like the, as we were saying before, I don't think the wretch is a power anymore. It's not a thing you think about activating and deactivating. It is Victoria. It is part of her. Um, I mean, I, I almost wonder if it's not just permanently on now. I, I, I thought about that. And I thought, ooh, that could be possible. But there is a moment when she's on the phone with her dad where she explicitly says, and then I turned off my force field. Okay. Um, and my phone dropped. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. So I think, like, he, like, it's his reaction to killing Amy. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, he's it's so loud that she, like, needs to take the phone away from her ear, and she does it by just cutting her force field off and then catching her phone with her real hand. Um, so... I thought I thought that maybe that was possible that it's just and that would also kind of explain why she's not at all worried about the the cracked ice thing, because like it's only powers being turned on and off that could mess that up. So right. just always on powers. And it's like, well, if my wretch is always on. Yeah. Um, but it's not. So, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. man. But yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's a good catch, though. Yeah. So here's where Victoria brings back that idea from the last chapter. Uh, what's me and what's my partner? And Tattletale brings back her counter from 47 arcs ago. <laughs> it's both. It's always both. She says, don't reduce, focus on the totality. And, you know, I don't know if we've made this explicit before, but you, you can frame this as, is this thing I don't like about myself me? Or is it my mental illness? Or is it my trauma? And I think, you know, what Tattletale would say is, don't reduce. Think about yourself holistically. It, it's yeah. your your mental illness and your trauma. They're they're they they run through you in in impossible to disentangle ways. You have to consider yourself as a coherent unit. Right. I think right. that's really interesting. Yeah, and as much as we would love for this book to end with, and then they killed all the aliens and lived happily ever after. That's just not. I don't think that's the way this book ends, and I don't think that's the way this book was ever going to end. And this, I think, is one of the most specific 
hints towards that that we've had in the story for a while um besides just like logical kind of understanding about how this author constructs his worlds but like the you, you, you these things are inextricably linked right like you can't separate them you can't do it so this this back and forth deciding on how much is me how much is my power um well is there anything is there something you can do about that like and and i love this moment where she's like well i told that to amy so i have to i have to consider it myself <laughs> tattletale's like didn't you tell that to amy specifically because it gave her an easy out and you were just trying to manipulate her like isn't that the like it's it's kind of it's kind of bullshit in that it's obviously an easy out yeah. that like removes all responsibility <laughs> from yourself um and victoria's and I, like uh <laughs> good point uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and i love that i love this idea of thinking about it in totality thinking about yourself holistically this is part of you now there's nothing you can do about it the best thing you can do is find a way to coexist with it live live with it come to a partnership as maybe victoria is currently doing i don't know mm-hmm. yeah I, I think so i mean I think that this is a this is a healthy mindset for her to have. I think it's a healthier mindset than the one where she's kind of going crazy trying to figure out what is actually her. Because yeah, as 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 Sveta has pointed out, she has a lot of issues with identity. Sure. Um, and it's it's somewhat like she she's someone who she's always had this thing where she has like a a big bucket of identities. That she mm-hmm. kind of sifts through to d- determine wh- which identity am I, am I going to use right now for this problem, and I think that that can be useful. But I think that there's also a perspective that says you really should be trying to be integrated. You should be trying yeah. to be an integrated being, and there should you you should be striving for there to be only one you. And and actually, maybe that's really difficult. Maybe even a normal non-superhero is going to have trouble being fully integrated and maybe it's a it's one of those unattainable goals that is nonetheless healthful to strive toward yeah Um, yeah and and i'm going to jump ahead a little bit here uh because there's a little bit later she kind of goes through every single member of her team and breaks down their their totality right she breaks down who they are and their problem mm -hmm. um and then thinks about it And, and the thing she says here which is really fascinating to me is each person considered in totality rather than a person and a problem to either be embraced or defeated by. And what I love about this is this is the book framing Victoria's want versus her need, right? Mm -hmm. Because basically Victoria's want this entire time has been solution to the problem. Here's a prop. We start off the, we start off the book and the problem is, uh, I want to go out there and make sure that what happened to me never happens to anyone else ever again. And so I'm going to go out there and I'm going to fight and I'm going to make a difference and I'm going to bring people together and I'm going to improve the world. And then eventually there's a realization that this is not solving it. This is not a permanent solution. And so she shifted to, okay, well, the problem is the shards. Then I'm going to figure out the shards. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to solve this problem. And this is Tattletale offering a perspective that is these are not problems to be solved. The path to recovery is not looking at each individual person, individual person and saying, OK, here's how we solve that. Here's how we solve that. Here's how we solve that. It is you. It is not that specific kind of Victoria centric 
problem solution problem solution thing and and that is i think going to be a challenge for her going forward and and maybe she's getting there with her shard and that's how she's going to learn this lesson that tattletale is kind of introducing here but i i, I like this as a I, i've been kind of searching recently for like what is victoria's arc going to be by the end of this book right like when we look back on this book what is her transformation from beginning to end going to look like and this is one of the things i can see this this concept of problem and solution moving towards some sort of different kind of understanding yeah i mean i'm i'll just be interested to see if this has a long-term impact on her thinking because it is rather antithetical to a lot of the way that she has has she's someone who, who tries to break things down and simplify them and this is yeah basically tattletale saying the problems that we have are not amenable to that kind of analysis like you you, you're you're not going to succeed that way and you haven't been succeeding that way Mm -hmm. and um so i'll just i'll be interested to see what effect this has on her thinking going forward if she actually internalizes it yeah yeah we'll find out um there's some great writing in here though where tattletale is talking to her and tattletale says uh, you wanted molly coddling sorry hun molly coddles a whole nother cape out there somewhere you get the tattletelling annoying hard to confront truths and possibilities I hope there is a Molly Coddle out there somewhere and artists listening to this podcast. I need you to create the Cape Molly Coddle. Draw Molly Coddle, please. I want to see them. We need some trigger gen for Molly Coddle or some (laughs) power gen rather. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Also, you know, that moment you you mentioned um, where uh, she goes through every member of breakthrough. This is, this is great writing and, and great conceptually where she says, uh, each of us had unique relationships to our passengers, fighting it daily for control over her body, having to meditate to even find a semblance of functionality, caged by it, portioning out life in turns, caught up in manufactured dreams and chained to fan- fanatical enemies, pulled in deep with tragic qualities and habits turned into tools that fed those same qualities in maybe the deepest spiral I'd known a parahuman to have, wearing it like a fragile piece of armor. Um, I, I just think that's really nice, like succinctly written and it it's the kind of thing where you know you're having a character in the story steal our job from us yeah um, <laughs> right but in a way where it's it's just it's very you know it doesn't it doesn't belabor the point right it's like each of them gets one very succinct little sentence and then and we move on so yeah and, and i mean i think what the the book has done is just re like reframed an entire way of thinking for us and it it is nice enough to give us some examples yeah, <laughs> right? right like i think i think that's very important like we were kind of shifting one of the ways we we look at this power person dynamic and so let's let's go through some examples so i yeah. i appreciate the book doing that me too um yeah so uh let's talk for 10 minutes about the metaphorical implications of running headlong downstairs two at a time past people without touching the rails because if you wipe out on the stairs, uh, your power will just save you. Yeah, that's great. That's something that's going to be good. That's a good mindset to have because you're safe because your powers. I really did think this was great because like, I love it. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go pell-mell downstairs without having a hand on the rail because like you just get, you can just get so horribly fucked up doing that. Matt, I fell on a stairs like a week ago. I, I know. And my leg still hurts. Yeah. Because yeah. I landed on my leg in the worst way possible. I'm sorry. 
and I wasn't even running. And and you you weren't relying on your powers to save you either. So yeah. Um, but yeah, just this this idea, the metaphor of throwing yourself into danger, and just knowing like, yeah, my power will save me if I fall. Right. The power um, that she's taken to calling the fragile one. Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, I, like I really like I, I I know I'm belaboring it, but like I feel like that's I feel like that little meaningless piece of text where she's going down the stairs is is, is going to matter. Like the sure. idea that you're that that oh it, it's fine, power will bail me out. It doesn't have to matter specifically, just to to, to be a, a clue into her, her mindset. Yeah, like, sure. Like yeah. I mean, we're we're still at a point in this book throughout this entire arc where like Victoria really wants to fucking punch someone with the wretch. Yeah, and she hasn't been able to all arc. And she's so excited, like she's going to get the opportunity, right? Like the book is not going to end without Victoria fighting more people, like obviously. Um, And she's going to be so excited and happy about getting to dive into that, that that seeing this mindset with that, that central want makes you kind of go, I'm worried about you. I I guess, I guess that's what I like about this is she's fully She's basically thought to herself, like, I'm going to avoid power use because they told me to and because mm-hmm. of the the reality breaking. Um, and then she puts herself in a situation where if a mistake were to occur, she would need to use her power instead of just like walking down the stairs in a safe and normal fashion. Right. So yeah. she's she's setting herself up for failure in a sense. Sure. You know, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll stop talking about the stairs now. No, it's great. I'm glad you built that out. That is that is what we do here at We've Got Ward. <laughs> we talk about running downstairs for five minutes. Great. Okay. So she returns to the situation room and she holds off Eric long enough to have a conversation with Citrine. Um, Citrine is properly terrified of Contessa. Uh, she appears to have forgiven her, or she says she has. Um, but Vicky's going to get an eyelid cut off if she keeps implying that Kurt had any weaknesses. <laughs> So my favorite part about how this starts, Matt, is this this uncertainty from Victoria about Citrine even telling the truth about Number Man being dead, right? Like she kind of goes through this thought process of like, is she faking it? She's wearing her emotions on her sleeve. Maybe she's wearing them like too far out on her sleeve. Maybe this is just a ruse. And I just love this because it it, it reminds us that Victoria has this central distrust of citrine like yeah she's in this room she's surrounded by non-powered people uh some of which don't like her very much eric and there's one cape here that's that's in her direct area and it's the person that she doesn't trust doesn't like and, and grudgingly made a deal with and even here we see her thought process like uh do I even trust her to that her husband died? I don't know. And I, 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 I just love that. I just love that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, I do want to zoom in on that apology though, because I, I, anytime we're starting to talk about forgiveness and apologies, like I immediately have to compare Victoria's central thought process to someone else's. And Citrine basically just says, we accepted her apology. And Victoria's like, just like that. No. And Terry's, not just like that, but we know what company we keep with. And I think this is great because I think this shows Victoria's anti forgive and forget ideology versus Citrine's um, 
Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, like I, she obviously is still upset about it. She's still angry about it. She, um, but she's like, she's apologizing. What am I going to do? Say no. Right. That's not, that's not her mindset. Yeah. It's like she, she, she knows she's a monster and she knows that she's not going to, to ever be able to get revenge on her. Right. So, right. so f- forgiveness for her is more like, saying i won't come after you <laughs> right right <laughs> um probably same for the number boys actually where they just yeah. kind of all agree like we're we're not happy about this but we're not going to make it a priority to uh, mm-hmm. try to kill contessa because yeah. that's a bad idea um i mean yeah yeah so the the, the questions that victoria asks her are I, I i pulled out i basically summarized them fairly <laughs> simplistically actually but but i summarized them this way because i feel like these are just the perfect questions for victoria to be asking right now especially with her frame of mind where it is because basically Mm -hmm. basically she says i want to know about identity who is she i want to know about intimacy does she have any relationships with others i want to know about potential regrets that she might have and i want to know about motivations and i would say like identity intimacy and regrets are major themes of this chapter for Victoria specifically. And I think, I think motivations are something she kind of always thinks about. So, yep. And I mean, you could, and I'm not saying like none of, I think Citrine's answers directly correspond to anything that Victoria has going on. Right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, just the concept of those, that framing device on how, how we dissect a, a person we're trying to understand. You could ask those same questions of Victoria. Who is she? Does she have any relationship with others? What are her regrets? What's her motivation? This is exactly what I, and I wonder if there are wardens out there asking these same questions about Victoria right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. From just like a nerdy perspective of like Wild Bill creating this character of Contessa and then like asking these questions of himself and then writing them down. I really think this is cool because like Citrine paints this picture of a child, right? Someone who because of their power has never needed to learn any survival mechanisms we have like this idea of trust, autonomy, relationships. None of these things are framed for this person the way they are for us. And like you think of like you just can kind of just imagine just like, okay, what would a person who always knows the right path learn about trust, right? Mm -hmm. Well, nothing because you don't need trust right like you like it is it is a useless i concept for you at that point so it's just like this is just fun concepts of like take the power and then just create a person around it and and i think this does i think citrine obviously is a little bit colored by her feelings of contessa and what she did but i think this does mostly line up with the person who we saw in worm right this person that when her power was removed she was almost entirely paralyzed by the idea of making a decision because she making a decision you don't know the outcome to is terrifying um, because she's never had to do it yeah and of course she has grown and changed since then of course because that's what people do but the nature of her power is that we can't know how she's grown and changed right yeah i think you know what what citrine focuses on is like or, or i guess one way of phrasing it is she's she's paralyzed where she was when she got her power when she was like 12 or right, whatever right right so mentally and in terms of her personality and and her ability to think about other people that's that's where she still is yeah and i love the end of this conversation though citrine basically is saying she's not going to betray you she's too busy doing her other stuff and victoria's response is she could make you think that 
she could she would do so perfectly and that's just so deliciously <laughs> ominous right like yeah. like that's that's contessa that's like the the any opinion of contessa you have could be influenced by contessa to make you have that opinion of her yeah because that ensures her survival <laughs> and it's just like this oh my god yeah. oh my god <laughs> right i also like the part when victoria said like um she would choose to do this you know x over y because it would be easier and Citrine's like, no, no, everything is equally easy for her. It's yeah. not a matter of easy. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, like if she said it, then you can hope she lied because the lie required less steps than the truth. That yeah. is a wonderful sentence. Right. Um, but, yeah. And Which, this is why I end up liking Contessa, right? Because mm-hmm. like this, this concept of the story breaking character that you're always like, oh, I don't know if bringing this character back was a good idea. But then it has stuff like this. It has interesting, fascinating ideas like this. Um, and just like and I, one of the things that I think Citrine has basically done here is just basically throw up her hands and be like, look, we can't. You're, you're absolutely right. We can't know. We can't know for sure. We have no idea. So we could sit here and dwell on that fact or we could just acknowledge that we have no idea and just try to make choices around that. Yeah. Or, or, or basically just I think I think her mentality is like, I'm just going to do my best. Right. Yeah. And hope that that I am part of her plan in a way that is in line with what I actually want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think I think Citrine is, has has had a lot more time to come to terms with this than Victoria. Sure, um, sure. Because yeah. she seems to have a fairly developed kind of philosophy about it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so the conversation does wrap up with Citrine giving her opinion that Contessa was probably being truthful about some terrible consequence waiting in the wings for breakthrough. Um, so that is, Yay. you know, bad. Uh, yeah, and then, so and then, we, bas- we do get like explicit through Tattletale and then this like, we basically get told, hey, remember that uh, person removed from the team for a long time? That wasn't Byron. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just yeah. like, great. Awesome. Right. Yeah. Don't right. you're, you're not off the hook yet. Right. Yeah. Um, and then Eric ambushes her. So. Um, so Victoria is hopeful that this is because a cruise missile is about to kill Amy, but no such <laughs> luck. Uh, Eric is even more overtly angry and frustrated than ever. Victoria actually tries to be placating, actually, at, at first. She, she complies with this order to sit down. She says, please. Um, but, but beneath that, though, she's not really willing to back down on her request to call her therapist. Uh, presumably, she means Darnall here. Yeah, I, I, that's what I guessed, too. Uh, which is, shows a certain amount of respect for Darnall, who has been a guy that she's kind of, like, blown off yeah. many, many times throughout the story. Yeah, I, I think... I think we see a Victoria here that is like, look, I'll do whatever you want. I'll submit to whatever you want. Just give me, throw me this one bone. Like, just let me call this guy or confirm to me that you've at least started the process of lining up this therapist. And Eric is just like, no, nope, I'm fucking done with you. You've pissed me off enough. You've lied to me enough. You've been, a, you've, you've been a jerk to me enough that I'm done. I'm not giving, I'm not doing you any favors. You're going to listen to me or else. Um, and so we basically immediately get in standoff mode. And this is when my brain went, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of great. Like we kind of wanted them to just come to a, we, we've wanted things to come to a, a head for some time, yeah. I think. Yeah. 
and Eric has been um, he, uh, he feels like he's been pushed to such an extent that this is justified. Yeah. Um, of course, I mean, I don't think it is. I think he's just being a, 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 a jerk. I think he's been a jerk the whole time, but here he's being the kind of jerk where he's like, I'm, I'm going to be angry and emotional about this because I'm justified now. And I'm like, I don't, this is a professional situation. You're not really justified to get angry and yell and grab her phone from her. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, not at all. Especially not to grab her, which he should shows the inability to learn from lessons. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah. So he angrily snatches her phone out of her hand, smacks it on the table hard enough to crack the screen. And, yeah. And yeah. And this is, this is the point of no return, right? Like yeah. this is, this is we've crossed the Rubicon. <laughs> yeah. Um, regardless of how you felt about Eric before, this is now we've gotten serious. Um, and this is the the collapse of any kind of argument I think he had in this moment. Yeah, right. So he brings up the point that she put herself at the disposal of the wardens. That was her willingly submitting herself to their authority. And therefore she should listen to him and and she counters that she didn't really mean like by the wardens she didn't mean some jumped up intern (laughs) she meant like the authority structure of the warden's leadership Mm -hmm. and and so she moves to leave and he grabs her arm and she uses just like a jujitsu move to get out of his grip without without using powers but still still kind of physically dominates him in a way that puts everyone in the room really on edge um, because, you know, it, even if she's not using powers, it's the cape kind of manhandling somebody. Yeah. I mean, yeah he, he totally instigated it. But, but I think that's kind of the, the point is that, is that everyone in the room is still more scared of her, even though he instigated it because, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's sort of the idea we've brought up before, like a, a, a pair of human is always wielding a gun, even if they aren't actively using their power. So, right, right. And that's, I mean, that's the dangerous situation she's in now, right? Like, like he instigated this contact. She moved herself out of it and did it in as gently a way as you can say, get the fuck off me. Um, and to a lot of people in the room, and I think the text explicitly states this to a lot of people in the room, it looks like this is parahumans once again, asserting their dominance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the text goes out of its way to, to clarify that that is the case. Like even, um, even, um, what was the guy's name? The guy who was nice, Larue. Larue, yeah. Um, was was like he he he's he's distracted. He he's paying attention to this, and he's and he seems scared too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this is all building toward this reveal at the end of the chapter. Um, or, or or what functions as a reveal? I mean, it's not necessarily clear as to what's happening here. I think it's I think it's a pseudo reveal. It, it's sure. a it's a look over there. And then the camera starts to pan, but you don't quite fully understand what what it is or why. But basically, basically, Eric says, you're supposed to listen to the unpowered because this is his thing. This has been simmering beneath the surface the whole time. Yeah. We know that Eric has strong opinions about the old PRT. Eric is hurt and scared by Victoria throwing her weight around. And at this moment, Mayor Citrine chimes in basically on Victoria's side saying, Hey, fuck you, buddy. Having us <laughs> capes paid enough in blood to, to, you know, govern ourselves and not be pushed around by you people. Yeah. And, um, and basically it creates this terribly tense, uh, uh situation. Yeah. And, and I want to talk about this for a bit. Let's, let's kind of wrap up our Eric talk here because 
obviously what we do learn here is that Eric is this guy who uh, has an obsession with probably does think capes are cool, but also has an obsession with the old way of of, hey, we we get to be in charge of them. They are they are subservient to us. And he gets in the situation and within the first month of his job, he is directly put in charge of a parahuman. And as, as we said, it goes to his head and he acts like a dick and he is challenged in a way that he did not expect to be challenged because this is not the way it's supposed to go. Um, the question I have. So one of the things that the Victoria directly challenges is his is what authority he has. Right. You said like like she agreed to the, the authority of the wardens, not to whoever the fuck this guy is telling her what she can and can't do. So my question on that is, is not that that's incorrect. I think that's right. I think when she said she was going to submit to the wardens, she did not mean Joe intern. Um, but my question to you, Matt, is if Eric weren't the one giving these orders. If it was defiant, if it was scenarial, if it was a cape in the leadership structure in this organization, would Victoria have listened to it still? Um, I'm inclined to say no. I think I think that there's a chance that she would be, but um, I think that she has this control issue, and if they are if they are not working with her, you know, if, if she feels like she's being shut out unfairly. Mm-hmm then I feel like she is going to find a way to work around them. Yeah. I, I think, I think that if she thinks that they're being fair to her, then that's one thing. But, uh, if she doesn't think they're being fair, then, then, then no. Right. Right. And I, and I think the thing we need to say in this hypothetical situation that I've just created is that the odds of defiant or scenario or, um, um, narwhal uh, narwhal. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, being as rigid and unbending in the rules around Victoria's benching as Eric is are very slim. Um, They probably would not have been, but I do think, I do think that we saw through Victoria's rather explicit rejection of um, defiance orders not to go into the shard realm that regardless of who the authority figure is, if she finds it important enough and she's going to do it. Yeah. So so like while I do 100 percent agree with the Eric is a prick, um, he had no authority in this situation and he's letting this shit get to his head and it causes him to act like a total asshole and break shit and push her. Um, I don't quite buy the idea that um, I would have been 100 percent compliant had it been someone that wasn't you. Yeah. I just don't buy that. Right. I, th- there's no contradiction in in saying the two statements. Number one, Eric doesn't actually have this authority and he's being a jerk. And number two, Victoria probably still should have listened to him because now she's created the situation where she's being extremely duplicitous and she has 13 people watching her on cameras. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's the important of that that message from tattletale is that there are people in this room that are and and not in this room that are concerned about your behavior concerned about the way you're acting and 
what is what are the consequences of this? Like, right, I think I think in the moment we can see the sweet vindication on, on Victoria that she was kind of right about this guy. He's exactly a shitty. Well, maybe not exactly a shitty, but he certainly is a, 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 a shitty human being who uh, has has parahuman. I, I don't know if I want to go so far as to call him anti parahuman, but like they have their proper place in society mm-hmm. and it is underneath us. Um, I guess you could maybe say that's anti parahuman. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, what are the consequences of this now? Like you, you won, you beat Eric. What happens right. next? I, I think, I think the idea here is she may have won the battle, but has she lost the war? Like sure. has she broken the warden's trust in her and now uh, she's going to get some much worse consequence than she would have gotten otherwise. Yeah. Cause is, is scenario going to come back into the situation and go, Oh yeah, you're totally right. That guy was a dick. You, you totally shouldn't have listened to him. He wasn't speaking with my authority. Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. I mean, it's all, it's, it's also very likely that like dragon stepped in and she's like, Oh yeah, we were watching all that stuff you were doing. Um, <laughs> Yeah. All the duplicitous yeah. secret stuff you were doing. Right. Yeah. Kenzie's camera manipulation where yeah. you were talking on your phone, but she made it not seem like that. Yeah. We knew all that. Yeah. There, there is an interesting wrinkle here. Like Eric is t- Eric tells Victoria that Mark told Eric that she asked him to kill Amy. Yeah. And very possible that that's what happened. But what if like they were just listening in on the conversation because they connected through Eric's mm-hmm. phone. What if they just had, were listening in on that conversation and, and Eric doesn't want her to know that. So yeah. he says it came from her dad. Yeah. That's really interesting. It would be, it would be an interesting like twist to learn that like there's a team of a whole bunch of people whose like whole project is like, we gotta, gotta figure out what's going on with her and what, what, what she's doing, but not let her know. Yeah. And Eric is just like the front man. I don't know. Sure. I, I, I just yeah. made this up, but um, it's fun to think about. Um, so I like, so, so to get back to this, this tent situation that they've created, uh, the text says they were trapped in a cage with a lion and a panther and both animals focused on them rather than <laughs> on one another. <laughs> and I was the dreaded lioness. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to quote 7.1 for a second, Scott. Sure. Um, Victoria being offered stress balls. Lion, I said. Do you want to check the bag? There are others. The lion would be great, thank you, I said. I had a childhood toy that was a lion. So Victoria has always been the lion. Mm-hmm. She's the lion. She's the lion. Um, so the feeling of tension in the room makes Victoria wonder, was this a spurt of lava, part of a Contessa plot? Is this important? Is this a critical thing happening right now? And then the whole milieu makes her ask... Are we keeping tabs on the anti-parahumans? Because that's that's something that just pops into her mind right now. Like, hey, like this seems important. This this thing happening right here in this room seems like a microcosm of what's happening out there. And um, and our attention is diverted that way. And then basically the chapter ends without without necessarily confirming anything. But uh, it's it still basically works as a reveal, right? Yeah, I mean, basically what Victoria does is is the talking with Eric, noted anti-parahuman, I guess, <laughs> thinks they're like, oh, yeah, what about these fuckers? Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then she goes, OK, wait a minute. Uh, they would be maybe small enough that Dinah wouldn't pay attention. Contessa used them, but not directly. So there could be something Contessa uh, related. Um, they she finds a group of them near a teacher blind spot. So they'd skirt by unnoticed. So the reveal here is basically 
the one threat that capes would never see coming is the unpowered, which is perfect, right? Which is like, it's perfect. It's metaphorically perfect that non-powered people are constantly being overlooked by the parahumans. They are not being paid attention to They're They've got bigger things to worry about. They're kind of have, they're struggling with their own thing and they're just not thinking about these people. And Oh, look, maybe it is a group of these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, so we kind of know what direction we're looking in, but, but, but nothing's been, we don't know the shape of it yet. Right. And mm-hmm. of course we know that the major malfunctions are one of the teams in that area. Yeah, and if Wildbo kills them, I'm gonna be so mad. Yep, me too. It's it's gonna be. I love them. It's yeah, I know they're they're so so. I think I think back when the major malfunctions were introduced, I don't remember, remember what we said because that was a long time ago. But I think a long time I, ago. I, I think that I felt like, okay, where are we going with this? You know, we're introducing these these three kids. Um, I think at the time they were speaking to some of the themes of what, of what Victoria was struggling with and mm-hmm. she felt like she could be a mentor to them. And there's a lot going on there specifically, but also just this idea of like, okay, these, these seem to be ongoing characters in the background. Um, they've been mentioned at various important points in time. So are we, is this one of our background elements that become surprisingly important? Um, yeah. And I think the answer is probably yes, but, but we'll see. Well, in the concept of this young Cape group that Victoria is so respected for being able to stay together throughout all this terrible stuff, being at the epicenter of whatever's about to go down mm-hmm. is certainly horrible and tragic. And um, knowing our girl, she's going to blame herself. Yep. All right, Scott. That's it for that's, that's it. these two chapters. Rest in peace, Eric. (laughs) Probably never going to see him again. Although this is the third time I've said that and he just keeps popping up. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to just tag along for the whole rest (laughs) of the show. Um, all right. The discussion question last week was what is your favorite example in fiction of a scene where characters watch things happen on screens or some other medium? God, we got so many good answers for this. It was really great. Yeah. Um, so before we read these, I, I wanted to just say like, um, the, the, the two things that I was sure that were going to get mentioned were, uh, aliens and contact and, and neither of those things was mentioned by anyone, which I'm not complaining. I just thought it was interesting. Cause I was like, well, these are the two obvious ones. Um, aliens, <laughs> obviously the scene where, um, Ripley and, and, and others are watching the space Marines go down into the nest on the TVs and there are long stretches of it that are just them watching the grainy footage it's um, so good. <laughs> it, it's really, it's really awesomely done. I mean, if you haven't seen Aliens, first of all, how dare you? Um, Is that possible? Can that be possible? Yeah. Um, um, if you haven't seen Aliens, please email us at gotwormpod at gmail dot com. <laughs> um, I will buy you the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one is Contact, where there's a whole part of the movie where they're interacting with somebody via like camera at a remote location. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of camera like stuff in that movie, like. Uh, but anyway, that, that's a, that's a good movie mm-hmm. also. It's a great movie. Not as good as Alien though. Aliens. Wow. <laughs> All right. Uh, Sarah Penguin says, I'm going to assume that due to vagueness, uh, that watching TV counts in romance novels, when the protagonist and the love interest watch TV together, usually with a blanket, it creates a feeling of warm, safe intimacy. 
If the relationship is new, it can be a stepping stone to the first kiss. A more established relationship can show them being more comfortable with each other. It can also be used to create the spark of the relationship as one person realizes their feelings while cuddling together. For non-straight romances, you can also have the character realize uh, they might not be as straight as they thought. What they choose to watch and and why can help build their personality. Finally, there is the fall asleep in a cuddle pile and one person drools on the chest of the other. So basically they're, they're gesturing at this um, trope of, of the, the TV watching is almost used as, as an excuse for these characters to sit next to each other and for sexual tension to fulminate. And I think uh-huh. that's, that's the, that this is not at all what I was thinking actually when I, with, with this question, but I, but I love this answer. This is very interesting. Yeah, Sarah Penguin is our, our resident uh, romance novel uh, reader in the community, and I, I think she always kind of comes at these questions with an angle that I would never consider because I don't commonly read those books, but I always love those answers. So Yeah, yeah. Next, we have Heart Shaped Pupil, who says, I'm going to choose two related comics for the question, Vite watching screens in Watchmen and Thunderbolt doing the same in Peter Cannon Thunderbolt. In both of them, the way the screens mirror the nine panel grid the story is being told on is brilliant. And I absolutely love the metafictional stuff Gillen gets up to through that. I'm not going to get into specifics of that to avoid spoilers. Yeah, I love the Watchmen scene. I have no idea yeah. what this other thing is, though. <laughs> Neither do I, but the Watchmen scene is great. And Everyone should watch the Watchmen show on HBO, especially Matt. Oh, I thought you were kidding. What? Are you? Wait, wait. Should I actually? No, it's fucking amazing. Oh, okay. I, I'm not kidding. It's oh. really good. Oh, okay. All right, good. I'll, I'll watch it. No. Okay. I'm not. I'm not actually gonna watch it. Um, Hobo Demon says Snatch, uh, which is funny because I've watched this movie, but I like don't remember any of the stuff that he's talking I about know. here. Uh, but apparently when Brick Top and company are viewing security camera footage recapping the earlier scene of the bookie robbery, uh, we don't see the action and we don't need to. But in a moment of irony, earlier expectations are subverted. During the robbery, Saul and Vinny take off their masks in defeat when they are defeated by a door, only to be rescued by Tyrone when he opens the door properly before being the one to obtain their MacGuffin. Uh, in the original playthrough of the scene, Tyrone proved to be the competent savior subverting our expectations that he was a bumbling stooge who doesn't know uh, which way things come from when driving in reverse. Now that subversion is subverted, as it turns out, he is competent enough to be well-known and is recognized on the security camera footage while Saul and Vinny are complete unknowns. Zoom in on Tyrone's face and smash cut to Tyrone being kidnapped and given the Rachel Lynn treatment until he cooperates. This is so weird because I know for a fact I've seen this movie many times. I own this movie. I'm holding it in my hand right now, and I don't fucking remember any of this. Yeah, it's vaguely familiar to me. I think the problem is that I think I've merged together several different movies, and they're all snatched to me. That's um, fair. So, That's fair. Yeah. But I like the idea of of using using that security footage as like a, a way to measure a change in, in recognition for a character. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Death of the artist next picks Videodrome. Uh, says for those of you that don't know, it's the 1983 classic Canadian body horror film by David Cronenberg. The film is largely a meditation on the proliferation of violence in media, cultural desensitization, the over integration of technology in our lives. And most fundamentally the work of Marshall McLuhan, this last facet is what makes Videodrome such a great vector by which to answer this question. 
It is the exploration of McLuhan taken to its logical conclusion. Media and television become so integrated in our lives that media reality and even our human biology all begin to meld together. Um, and Death of the Artist goes on and really dives into this. Uh, we did a whole show on Videodrome, Matt, and I really enjoyed that movie. I thought it was great. And I think this is a perfect answer because like the screen in Videodrome is the movie. It, it is so important to what the movie is doing, what the more movie is explaining. Yeah, that's a crazy movie. Um, that that was that was a, one of the old Kryptonian collection. Uh, um, I guess you can call it a Doofcast. It was a it was a Daily Planet. It's mm-hmm. on the Doofcast feed if you want to listen it to is. it. It is. It um, is. Yeah, uh, we both listened to it last week, and man, yeah, I'm glad we're better at this now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we listened to it because we were like, "What do I think about that movie?" Oh, I have a record of that. Yes. Um, yeah. So. Oh, why do I sound so tired? <laughs> well, what is my why is my mic so bad? Um, <laughs> Uh, Flower Priest says, my most indelible image of people watching things is the Saw franchise. Though the most recent movies have been subpar, the first six tell this epic, horror-awesome tale of trauma and revenge uh, with several characters in, in which several characters trap each other and most importantly watch each other succeed or fail to escape the traps through cameras. The movies deal a lot with the human fascination with violence and the apathy we have to the suffering of strangers. Yeah, um, I love the Saw series. Uh, here's a bad idea, though. Don't marathon them all in a day because <laughs> then your brain starts doing really weird shit. Uh-huh. Um, it's really great, though. I, I really like how screens are used in this story to kind of like specifically mess with time because it manipulate because you're watching something on a screen that you assume is live. But eh, no, it's not. So it's like kind of manipulating the concept of time through watching things on screens it's really cool yeah i haven't watched any of those because i don't i don't feel like i need that in my brain you know uh yeah i mean i think at the very least you should watch the first one okay i'll watch the first one okay probably not gonna watch it you keep doing this to me our rl raider says uh pick something from worm picks glenn chambers saying if you told me that girl was a member of the slaughterhouse nine i wouldn't have batted an eyelash uh, that was a great moment in the book. So that's, yeah. that's a good choice. That's this, the watching through the screen really matters there. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Stell Hex. Uh, so this is one of those things where it feels kind of spoilery. So I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing, but basically Homestuck. It's a Homestuck thing involving like one group of people controlling another group of people over like a sort of sim, uh, the Sims like control interface. And, um, and, and then a, a lot of, yeah, I, I don't actually know because I haven't read Homestuck, so it's hard for me to summarize. But yeah, yeah, Homes, Homestuck is the answer to this question. So, yeah. Uh, July 83 picks the movie Hannah, um, specifically the Black Sight interrogation and escape sequence. Um, they're pretty spoiler. They said the movie was eight years ago, so the spoilers are expired. But I'm going to go ahead and, and save and save it. Yeah, um, it's a Hannah's a good movie and there's a show now. That I haven't watched yet, but kind of want to watch it. Yeah, the the they're describing a scene toward the beginning of Hannah. Hannah is a really fun fun concept, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, yeah, this this is a it's it's like a watching a prisoner on security cameras type scene to give context. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Coinage talks about the Incredibles, and they say uh, obviously Incredibles two has far more to do with screens than one did, but. They really love the Kronos um, unveiling scene in the original where Mr. Incredible is in Syndrome's base 
and he's seen Gazer Beam and Syndrome uh, has already attempted to kill him once. So Mr. Incredible snuck in the base, past the lava doors, into, into the heart of the operation, and and basically he uh, he's he's watching um, he's wa- he's he's watching Syndrome's plan be outlined in a, in a series of like kill lists and um, and like records of of everything Syndrome has done to to kill all the heroes. Yeah, and it's it's there's almost i think there is no dialogue here actually or 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 at least almost no dialogue it's all conveyed through him watching stuff on a screen and yeah that's a that's an awesome scene yeah i like how they finish this answer up so one of one of the things that i love is the agency of the characters mr incredible can navigate the information within but he can't actually change its contents he's helpless and unable to protect his friends both dead and living the only thing he can do is keep scrolling hoping that more information will save him and i think that's when i thought of this question the answer i thought of is screens are a very powerful way of showing action but making our 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 characters powerless in it i mean if you talk about aliens your example that's absolutely excellent the reason what 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 having ripley and the rest of them witness all this action through the screens as these characters are dying really helps ratchet up the powerlessness to do anything right where we're barely even seeing it happen in the room we're watching other people watch it and that there is there is this complete removal of the ability to stop it, the ability to do anything, the ability to make changes, the ability to have agency and choice. And it is, it is just a really fantastic visual shorthand to really emphasize that. And that is exactly what it does in war too, right? That's exactly what the feeling that Victoria had as she's watching this stuff go down on the screens is this feeling of powerlessness, this feeling of lack of control, this feeling of loss of agency. And that's, I think what the best examples of this, do yeah i wonder if it's building to the same place that the alien scene was building to because at that point in the movie ripley is in this place mentally where she would never she would never go into the hive of her own free will mm-hmm. and then seeing everyone getting taken apart by the aliens and being being insanely frustrated by that is what drives her to finally say fuck it and and, and drive the the tank in there yeah um yeah. And and maybe the same thing is kind of, kind of happening with Victoria, where the pressure, the frustration is building to the point where she's just like, fuck it. And she's going to I'm going to run rash. down those stairs yeah. without holding on to the, the yep. banister. Yep. Drive the metaphorical APC through the metaphorical wall of the metaphorical fusion reactor. He's down. You're just grinding metal. <laughs> He's down. He's down. My uh, Hicks impression. That's really good. It's good Hicks impression. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Blarry three four five says the first thing that came to mind is not one scene but an entire show. I remember watching a TV show called Las Vegas about a fictional casino and the people that work there. One of the main sets was a security room, and a lot of the scene transitions would be from watching an event on a security monitor and pushing in through the screen and out through the camera in the location that was being filmed. The reverse would also happen a lot, revealing that the events had just happened had been observed by the security staff. This was a trademark of the show and gave the feeling that everyone was being watched at all times. That's great. That's another great way where these screens can be visual shorthand for communicating that kind of, uh, overbearing, oppressive, uh, monitoring. It's great. Hey, you know what that reminds me of something that only sort of worked is the matrix movies have a lot of moments where something is on a screen and then the camera pushes through the screen Mm-hmm. And it's only in 
in uh, I guess the second movie that you realize that these are actually all screens in the architect's office. Mm-hmm. They're not just like, yeah, anyway, cool. True, true, true. Um, so Beard of Valor says that they're going to go off prompt a little bit and talk about the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Jordy and um, <laughs> I thought it was Ensign Rowe. Uh, they can't remember who it was. Of course Th- They get that. phased out and s- with a near 180-degree phase, which means they're kind of like Shadowstalker, but they're also invisible where they can mm-hmm. like pass through things, but not the floor for some reason. Um, and so they're like walking around the Enterprise trying to get people to notice that they're there. Um, and then this, yeah, that's, and then, uh, also they, they mention Winona Ryder's wall in Stranger Things, um, as, as a similar kind of thing that they, they yeah. make a connection there. Like a created screen. Yeah, yeah. I like that. That is a little bit off the official prompt, but in an interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, I think the main, the core idea here is like, a level of, of 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 frustrated one-way observation where uh, in this case Jordy and I think I do think it was Roe um, could see everything that the other people were doing but the other people couldn't see them so yeah yeah Roundest Frog also answers Homestuck and without getting too into spoilers at one point in the story one character reads the book the book they're in the Homestuck it's like, book huh. it's like if you gave Victoria the entirety of Worm to read that's interesting. That's really cool. Or um, 100 Years of Solitude. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, Fluid Horror says, so, so uh, both both Death of the Author, uh, sorry, both Death of the Artist and Fluid Hor- Horror have mentioned 2006 film, German film called The Lives of Others, which is basically all about this idea. Um, yeah, I don't think Scott or I have seen this movie, but they both said that if they started talking about it, they'd end up writing a novella, so... Yeah, maybe we should go see uh, The Lives of Others. Yeah, I just love that both of them were like, I can't really talk about this because if I start, I'm going to write a whole book. And I'm like, wow, that's huh. fascinating. Yeah, that's <laughs> a selling point for me. Yeah. Fluid Horror also gives another example from Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. Uh, they, they talk about uh, the, the time when the protagonist watches his children grow up and start families uh, and careers uh, with all the joy and heartache and grief that that entails. I'm going to get choked up reading this answer. Yeah, um, you know, I, I did not like that movie, but that is the that, best scene in it. Yeah, it's it destroys me, yes. So, so much so to the point that I almost feel like that was the kernel of an idea of the story. Like this this creating a situation in which he Matthew McConaughey's character would get to do that, would get to like watch his daughter grow up through like years and years and years of video messages. Um, and they just built the rest of the story around it. I have no idea if that's true or not, but it just feels like it's so core to what the movie is trying to do. And I think unfortunately failing, but that's a different conversation. Um, but that's, that scene is amazing. Yeah. I think a lot of it works because of his performance um, yeah. too. So, yeah. All right. Last but not least, we have Stronger Bird who says the fantastic BBC series life on Mars as a quick summary of the series 
at the start of the first episode, DCI Sam Tyler gets hit by a car and wakes up in the 1970s, apparently in a coma dream, where he continues to work as a police officer in the swashbuckling world of 70s police work. Throughout the series, we never leave Sam's point of view, which adds to the effect that he's living in a dream and that things aren't actually happening while he's not around to experience them. In the third act of episode five of series two, Sam falls into a deeper state of coma that manifests as him being stuck in a dark room with a TV that allows him to flip through the channels to watch the dream world outside and follow his coworkers as they try to rescue two kidnapping victims. Wow. <laughs> what I love about this is that without leaving Sam, who remains as powerless as we are, as we are, as the tension of the dream world escalates, we get to watch things more omnipresently for once and finally get to see the side of characters who we've come to love by this point acting without him. Yeah, that sounds awesome. There was also an American Life on Mars. And there if you was. want to see the worst example of people just not giving a shit at all, um, when the show was canceled, they just were like, all right, fine, we'll just do a series finale episode. And it was the worst thing ever. You're going to watch this shitty American version of a British show. No. And you're not going <clears> to <throat> watch Watchmen. No. Is that what you're telling me right now? No, my mom my mom made me watch like two episodes of it. And I think one of those two episodes was the season finale. So that's, anyway. Maybe that's why you didn't like it, because you saw the season finale. No, 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 no. It's it's horrible. It's the stupidest okay. thing ever. Okay, I'm anyway. Sure it is. <laughs> Sorry that I shat all over your answer by talking about the American series Stronger Bird. I'm sure the BBC version was awesome and great. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, sounds like a lot of interesting things playing with this concept of of point of view and powerlessness um, and, hey, and using hey, screens. Yeah. Hey, remember when they tried to make an American version of the IT crowd? You remember? Remember that? No. Good. <laughs> that Joel McHale in the lead hey, it didn't work. Hey, remember when they tried to make an American version of The Office? Ooh. And it was really good. Yeah. Anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) next week's discussion question is, what is your favorite example in fiction of characters who you desperately want to be friends? Now, Matt, I saw you create this question and you didn't put anything else in the script. So would you be willing to explain where you got this from? Who are you thinking about when you wanted characters to be friends? Oh, I was thinking about Tattletale and Victoria. But they are friends. Um, well, but they weren't and we wanted them to be, and now they kind of are, but they're not, I still don't know if Victoria would say that Tattletale is a friend and ally. Sure. Um, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Now we're talking about, now the ship we're talking about here, people, is a friend ship. (laughs) No other kind of ships. Oh, calm I, down. I see. I see. I see what you're. I see your point now. Yes. Yeah. I I was worried for a second that we just officially sanctioned a shipping question, and I can't. I can't stand for that. No, no, we're not friend friendship. The friend the friendship. Yeah. I I, I mean <laughs> I, I know I can't tell you people what to do. You're gonna do what you're gonna do. But yeah, you're you're um, all you're all Victoria, and we're Eric. <laughs> <laughs> and with that. <laughs> That's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is scottdaily85, and Matt's is... 
uh, at Friendship Dinner Mail. That's right. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we recommend you do so so you never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, probably other ones. I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? I'm, don't don't we so run this? There, there there are there are there are websites out there that you have never heard of that have our podcast on them, which yeah. we don't endorse or have anything to do with. They just pull from iTunes. Yeah, yeah. they just pull from my. It's so crazy to see them. Right. So I can't really say where our show is. Mm-hmm. It's it's out there. It it is. Yeah. So, but that's whatever is the point mm-hmm. there. So. Uh, as, and as always, you can find all the other shows we do along with this one over at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you can find do the right thing and deep impact and media empty and the Doofcast, which this week we'll be talking about season one of She-Ra. 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 I still don't know how to say it. And I've watched all the episodes. You know what? Even in the show, they don't say it consistently. So, um, so there you are. Um, yeah, um, can, all, all the the shows are great. Go check them out. <laughs> um, and if you like any of those shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in the uh, fan art and Halloween costume contest. Uh, hangout sessions with us. Uh, we're we're doing the uh, Chuck Tingleverse um, game. <laughs> Uh, uh, role-playing game um, this month. Yeah, that's uh, next week, the 16th. Yep, uh, access to live streams of our recording sessions and the Discord chat, which is just the best place in the world, literally. Mm-hmm. As always, head over to patreon.com slash wildbow and donate a few bucks to wildbow because this is his world. We're just playing in it. And this week, special thanks to new patrons. Um, Scion did nothing wrong. Uh, Sarah S and Nathan T. Those are those are the bidoofs. I don't know. If Scion did nothing wrong. Seems and, like Scion did some stuff wrong. It, yeah, that's 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 a pretty strong statement. And then uh, Daniel T is a is a doof dancer. Mm-hmm. Thought there was one more here. No, no, no. Honestly, I saw the email come through. So we had a patron that whose name was my name is Scott Daly and I love anime. But then when I went to Patreon to pull their information, I couldn't. It wasn't on there, so I don't oh. know what happened there. Maybe they changed their name. Maybe it's, they changed their name to Scion did nothing wrong, thankfully. But yeah. I read it out loud, so their mission is accomplished. Yeah, you, we got the soundbite in, so. Yeah. Yeah, all right. You know, uh, if that gets people to stop watching me anime, I fucking love anime. <laughs> uh, we, we did it. We, we did it, everybody. <laughs> you can stop now. Um, all right. Uh, and of course, if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by sharing this podcast. We are a little tiny independent company, so we rely on you guys to share our stuff. And plus, hopefully you're convincing new people to read these excellent books too, which is definitely a bonus. Um, you can also just leave a review for us on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or, or one of those mysterious websites that our show is on somehow that Matt was talking about. If they accept reviews leave them yeah well why not can't hurt huh yeah um and that's all we have for you this week next week wabo kills uh, all the major malfunctions and uh, we riot